And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition on this Saturday night, November 13th, of the other side of midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn where the things that used to be confined to these hours are now with us 24-7. And we're going to get very deep into the weeds on all this tonight. We're going to tackle, you know, a really most difficult subject, which is what the hell is going on with the United States government and with the U.S. population and with our national interests and with our individual concerns and we'll kind of throw in just for the heck of it the rest of the planet um there's some very interesting news kind of you know uh, framing this question which i'll get to momentarily for those who are new to the show i want to direct you how to get to the other side of midnight uh which is of course our url you simply go to the internet, type in the other side of midnight.com, and that takes you to our homepage. If you click on tonight's banner, which says rather dramatically, because uh, we like to be dramatic over here, American history and revolution with a picture of a burning White House. How's that for subtlety? Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Our guest tonight is Dr. Bruce Olav Solheim. If that name rings the bell, it's because Bruce was here just six days ago, last Sunday night. So what I did is I asked him to change hats, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, and to put on his American history professor hat. And we're going to go through a number of interesting things that are occurring from, I guarantee you, a perspective you will not hear probably any place else on the internet, on broadcast radio, on YouTube, on Google. I mean, this is going to be one for the books. Before we get there, however, under the banner on the guest page, you'll see uh, where it says Fast Links to Items. Click on my name. That takes you down to a section we call, for all you newcomers, Radio with Pictures, which I freely stole from RKO many, many years ago because, believe it or not, I actually had a script on a lot of the stuff we talk about uh, up in a development deal with RKO. And unfortunately, it did not, as most development deals did not pan out. But what, what I kind of salvaged was the idea of radio with pictures. Because remember, RKO was a radio picture. So little play on words there. If you go to my items number one, again, we're leading tonight with La Palma. This is a live link. Click on it. It will take you to the official information on the current status, the six-week status of the continuing La Palma eruptions. La Palma is one of the larger islands in the Canary Islands. Uh, In September, a volcano which hasn't blown its top for many, many decades suddenly started erupting. And the reason that any of us over here on the other side of the pond, as they used to say, are interested is because of the possibility that this set of eruptions or the gas magma inflation of the island itself will cause about half the island, which cracked 
uh, in a previous uh, series of events back in, uh, I think it was 1949. And half the island could slide into the Atlantic, creating as a 2001 rather detailed geological model, uh, which was published in peer-reviewed journals, pointed out, could cause a major mega tsunami, which would race across the Atlantic at the speed of uh, sound, something like six, 700 miles an hour. And six to nine hours later, it would wash up on the American East Coast and cause untold, absolutely catastrophic devastation. Now, that's the worst case scenario. And I've been saying now for weeks, pay attention, put this link on your phone. If there's major seismic events, you know, it will let you know and you can, you know, grab your go bag, which presumably if you're on the East Coast, you have packed. And you can get out of Dodge. And I noticed the other day that there was a Florida television station, I think it's Channel 8, which has actually posted a very considered piece on why such a mega tsunami ultimate catastrophe will not occur. And given that it's the other side of the story, and remember around here I'm a very firm believer in the First Amendment, that's why I you know, post a lot of things, including things on the other side of the news that I do not absolutely agree with. But as Thomas Jefferson said, I will defend to the death their right to say it, First Amendment. So First Amendment, item number two, is the reasons why the La Palma eruption cannot cause a mega tsunami in Florida and by metonymy the rest of the East Coast. So you might want to look at that very carefully, and it all comes down to which scientific model do you believe? The author uh, who was quoted, the geologist who was quoted extensively in the piece, uh, points out that the modeling, geological modeling and general data and general background and uh, pun intended depth of knowledge uh, on this subject has increased enormously since 2001. And that is true. Um, And so according to those calculations, uh, a tsunami, if it occurred with the island, you know, parts of it fragmenting and sliding into the Atlantic would cause no more than a seven to 10 foot wave, as opposed to the hundreds of foot wave, which the preceding paper back in 2001 had published. Given that I know the fragility of scientific modeling, all we have to do is look at our, you know, year and a half, two years of experience with COVID-19 and look at all the predictions based on fragmentary data on that and how many have been wrong or have had to be corrected or modified or withdrawn, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not a big fan of scientific modeling. And in this case, you know, it's uh, you remember the old uh, controversy about uh, defense against terrorists. You know, homeland security has to be right every single time. The terrorists only have to be right once. Well, it's kind of like that with the Palma. If I lived on the East Coast and I do have family there, so I've got them to put this alerting uh, alerting system on their phones. Uh, I would be erring on the side of ultimate extreme caution. I would read with interest the scientists, the geologists who are saying this is no big deal. 
But given the fact that we have visual evidence of stunning, bizarre, hyperdimensional torsion field clouds right over La Palma, a huge, slowly spinning vortex, I would be a little bit um, cautious about accepting any mainstream models because, again, if, as one of our scenarios, someone is doing this, and have you noticed how many major volcanoes are erupting around the world right now? Even if no one is doing this, i.e. like a weapon, the natural background physics that we have been tracking in the hyperdimensional torsion field model says that this kind of activity must increase in amplitude and in terms of frequency as we get nearer that nodal point that we've been discussing. Remember the the point on the calendar where the conditions are the same in the physics as they haven't been for something like 26,000 years. We're going to talk a lot more about this next Sunday night when I've invited uh, Rick Levine, our kind of resident hyperdimensional astrologer, uh, back to the other side of midnight. And we're going to go through some really interesting new data points indicating that something major I mean, something really amazing in the field is going to go down of all times on Christmas Eve, December 24th, little over a month away, that will have ripples ahead in time. We're going to talk about all this, but it's basically going to be another tutorial in how this physics reaches into the nursery and affects each, every one of our lives both at a collective level, which is what we're going to talk about tonight under the aegis of, you know, what's going on with the United States, as well as the very, very, very personal level. Uh, just in, as an aside, you did note from, I believe, the um, Labor Department, the rather remarkable statistics for August, that something like 4.6 million Americans just quit their jobs. Almost 5 million people just said, take this job and shove it, to quote a very famous song. And the background of that, I mean, there are a lot of factors going on, but part of it, I believe, could be attributed to the physics and people waking up, looking around, and realizing that even though they need the money, you know, uh, flipping hamburgers at McDonald's, is not exactly a, a uh, satisfying career choice. And so you have this enormous number of people who are just kind of suspended looking for something more fulfilling. That, to me, says enhancement in terms of the physics of consciousness looking around and saying in that great uh, song by, I think it was Peggy Lee, is this all there is? No, this is not all there is, as you're going to hear in several different dimensions, pun intended, tonight. Item number three. Uh, this one, this, this is getting really into interesting territory. Um, I don't think most people are aware that a few days ago, there was a two-hour conference 
comprising some very interesting big names in space and in intelligence and in academia uh, held at the, of all places, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. And it was called, incredibly enough, it was called the future of space. I mean, this is really bizarre. Our future in space was the actual technical term. Now, item number three, if you click on that, that will take you to an article in the New York Post, uh, which, among other things, has some very interesting quotations from a woman named Avril Haynes, who just happens to be the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. Remember, back after 9-11, there was a top-to-bottom review of why the intelligence community was not talking to each other, why the CIA wasn't talking to the DIA, and why the DIA wasn't talking to the FBI, and why the FBI wasn't talking to naval intelligence. And so they created this kind of top-down control system, which was a director of national intelligence to coordinate the 16 admitted to alphabet agencies that are supposed to be gathering intelligence for the United States government. And that person, who in this case is named Avril Haynes, reports directly to the President of the United States and delivers briefings on a daily or even semi-daily basis, depending upon the state of the world, the state of our relationship to the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, at this conference, which again was held at the National Cathedral, kind of echoing Jacques Vallée's uh, conclusions many, many years ago, that the UFO phenomenon and um, uh, occult phenomenon and spiritual phenomenon and religious phenomenon are all, in some sense, the same phenomenon. So you hold a conference where our future in space, which is what we're doing in space, and then what or who might be out there doing something to us, i.e. the recent uh, Pentagon report on the UAP phenomenon, which of course is supposed to be unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is a kind of a code name for UFOs. And remember the naval uh, battle groups, the uh, uh, carrier battle groups, both on both coasts going back to 2004, which have had major encounters uh, between F-16 and F-18 pilots and uh, things buzzing the uh, the fleet uh, repeatedly now. In fact, uh, it was said the other day by, I'm trying to remember what the source was, that since the appearance of the uh, uh, major story in the New York Times in 2017, uh, talking about the Navy's encounter with these UFOs repeatedly, that there have been something like 300 additional incidents which have now been dutifully recorded. And there is discussion about a uh, set of Senate and House hearings, which probably won't begin now until the after the turn of the year. But this has been quietly simmering on a back burner. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this conference was sprung. If you, by the way, click on this link, item number three, that will take you to the New York Post story, 
whose headline says, UFOs buzzing U.S. warships may be aliens. Quoting top spy chief, Avril Haynes. Ms. Haynes is the top spy chief who introduces the president um, during, uh, uh, you know, briefings um, uh, in the White House on the status of U.S. national security. Anyway, she makes a very interesting comment in this piece, which, of course, is abstracted from the actual uh, YouTube video of the conference, all two hours plus of it, which is available there. Just scroll a bit down in the uh, in the in the New York Post piece. You can find a clickable link with a uh, a big uh, arrow, uh, kind of a a delta turned sideways. Click on that. That will uh, uh, take you to this conference, which was November 10th. I mean, literally just a couple, three days ago. So um, in this piece, she is asked questions during the conference about the intelligence community assessment of... uh, the UAP and she says and this is very interesting um, because again this is the top spy employed by the US government reporting directly to the president Um, the main issue she says that Congress and others have been concerned about is safety of flight and counterintelligence issues she told the forum continuing the quote Always, there's also the question, quote, is there something else that we simply do not understand which might come extra thrilly, she said. And then the post says, Haynes appeared to hesitate when mentioning the word extraterrestrially. So we are being prepared. I mean, there is no doubt. No doubt at all we are being prepared. The question is, what are we being prepared for and when will the balloon go up? That's a very ancient phrase dating back to World War II. In other words, when will something in this arena, in this field, trip the national and international consciousness, go viral and begin an ascending set of events and network coverage and wall-to-wall discussion by all the pundits where suddenly the concept of Earth not being alone and us being visited by extraterrestrials, quoting Ms. Haynes, will become de rigueur, will become commonplace, will become mainstream. Obviously, you know that our position is it cannot come too soon because, frankly, And we're going to talk about this tonight with my guest. I'm thinking at this point that maybe the only thing that will bring us all together, not just as this country in its incredibly polarized political situation, but the world, which has been, you know, fragmented for, you know, thousands of years, if not tens of thousands. The only thing that may bring us all together as President Reagan said to um, uh, Gorbachev many, many decades ago, is some unknown alien threat. And if that sounds like a downer, remember the threat doesn't have to be real. 
there don't have to be bad guys out there who are basically after us with ray guns and spaceships. The perception that we are not alone, that we are not isolated, that we are a human family confronting the unknown, that could be enough to bring the kind of solidarity which can move through this transition in a very positive fashion. Which brings me to item number four. As you know, for the last several weeks, I've been uh, you know, kind of uh, jumping up and down over the comments that Bill Shatner made after he returned uh, to Earth from his 11-minute excursion into near-Earth space in an up-and-down suborbital flight in a Blue Origin spacecraft sponsored by the um, second most wealthy person on the planet, Jeff Bezos. Well, would it surprise you to know that Jeff Bezos was one of the voices at this conference, again held at the National Cathedral, affirming Jacques Vallée's religious cum extraterrestrial model that they're really all one? Anyway, back to item number four. So I've been really keen on the fact that after all these decades, after I tried valiantly in all kinds of different ways, when I uh, you know, got to know Gene Roddenberry many years ago, I tried him to mix the streams, mixing our movie metaphors madly. I tried to get him to take the Star Trek universe into reality, into how did we get from here to there? How did the Federation form? How did we go from a primitive, not even type one planetary civilization, uh, quoting Carl Sagan on the Kardashev scale, to where we are now essentially poised to become a type one, and yet we feel we are all alone? When does the reality of a federation of planets in the galaxy, of star systems, um, of the Star Trek universe, when does all that dawn? So I've been really interested in how Bill Shatner's comments about his personal, extraordinary, you know, 11-minute transformation of thinking that he, you know, knew everything he was going to experience and came back with incredible humility saying he knew nothing and this was real and that was real and the connection between life and death was real and earth is life and looking down there was his life and looking up there was dead black was not inviting and yet that's the place a la Bezos a la my long departed friend Kraft Ericke where we should be placing industries to preserve the garden planet that is earth anyway into this entire kind of stream of consciousness regarding the transformative capabilities of Bill Shatner, Captain James Tiberius Kirk, to literally uh, transform human consciousness. Well, into that, something new in the last few days was entered. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Because I was wandering around the dial on my satellite television system about a week ago. I discovered, if you go to item number four, I discovered 
something called the center seat. 55 years of Star Trek, which is being put on as a documentary series week after week on the History Channel. And after looking at, you know, show number one and show number two, I've got to say, I smell a rat. And it's a very positive rat. You know, remember, uh, FDR said in politics, there's no such thing as coincidence. Well, to me, the coincidence of this series, and it's extraordinarily good. It's good in terms of pacing. It's good in terms of writing. It's good in terms of the script. It's good in terms of the participant. There's not one bad thing you can say about it, and it reveals all kinds of things that even I, who, of course, you know, knew and was friends with and uh, worked with Gene all those many, many decades ago, even I did not know. Not the least of which is episode number one, which is available on the History Channel. You can uh, stream it. Uh, they have an archive. They have a vault where you can stream all of them. Uh, I prefer to wait week to week to week to kind of let, you know, time elapse for me to think about what each episode, there's up to two now, uh, have kind of gone over. Item number one, the first in the series, lays out in stunning, dramatic, and history-changing detail the role of one of my favorite actresses, Lucille Ball, in giving birth to Star Trek. And there are such details. In fact, she put her entire company, it turns out, Desi Lu, on the line to give birth to Star Trek. Without Lucy's vision, without her confidence in Jean, without her willingness to literally, in the food fight over money with NBC, to put up about a third of the budget of the show each week, which, which was the most expensive television show to create because of the special effects, of course. And they were damn good for the 1960s. Damn good. Um, without Lucille Ball, we would not have something that Dr. Solheim and I are going to be talking at length about tonight. So what you want to do is you want to uh, go to that link you want to bookmark it on your on your TV, on your TiVo, whatever you know subscription service you have, uh, whether it's on Dish or uh, uh, DirecTV or whatever, and you want to watch week after week as the story of the creation of Star Trek and the Star Trek universe unfolds. And in fact, as we make this transition, this extraordinary transition from well, from the fiction to the fact of living at the beginnings of the Star Trek universe. I mean, I can't say it uh, any more direct than that. This, in fact, is an exquisite series, which I think is going to be, you know, destined to live very long and to prosper. And what more can I say except this? <laughs>
it's funny because I think, you know, I went through my crazy phase where I made mistakes before the internet and before social media and before any of this. Whereas now you can't do that. There's no such thing. So like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves. People are too frightened. It's like, you know, I want to say something, but if, what if I use the wrong term? But I remember a story a couple of years ago where Benedict Cumberbatch, who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes, was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors. And, and he was sticking up and saying, you know, they're not getting paid as well. They're not getting the jobs that they should be getting. And they're being, there is no equality. But what he said was, there isn't equality for colored actors. Well, you've said colored there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community, but he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Anetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, November 13th, 2021. Well, when I was kind of casting around for who I wanted to talk to to do this kind of show, uh, I call it a hyperdimensional deep dive into American history. I did not know that there would be this astonishing new development on the UAP UFO front, namely the uh, DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. Again, the person who briefs the President of the United States on all dimensions of US intelligence gathering activities and results therefrom. I did not realize that she would be uh, front and center in a uh, uh, two hour conference held of all places at the National Cathedral. So then, when I saw that, it, I instantly realized, okay, this has to be, there's only one person that I can call upon to do uh, justice, and that person is the guest I am going to introduce right now. So without further ado, let me switch screens 
as I have to do this in some sequence here, and tell you who we're going to talk to tonight, who is the perfect person to make sense, I believe, of what's going to become a very rich and complicated and totally surprising, nay, probably even shocking to most Americans, set of developments that now are within the foreseeable future. We're talking maybe weeks, months, certainly not more than a year, but probably a lot less. Bruce Solheim was born in Seattle, Washington, to Norwegian immigrant parents, and his, uh, the first person, he was the first person in his family to go to college. He served for six years in the U.S. Army as a jail guard. We didn't get to talk to him last Sunday about that, and I do want to kind of pick up on that because I think it's part of this formative background which makes him appropriate to uh, talk about some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. Later, he was a warrant officer, helicopter pilot, and is now serving as a disabled veteran. And since we just passed Veterans Day, uh, uh, happy Veterans Day to all the veterans out there. Bruce has also worked as a defense contractor with Boeing for about five years. Dr. Uh, Solheim earned his PhD in history from Bowling Green State University in 1993. He is a distinguished professor of history, American history at Citrus College in Glendora, California. And he was a Fulbright professor and scholar in 2003 at the University of Tromso in Northern Norway. And he has published something like 12 books, written 10 plays, six of which have been produced. Um, and you can read all the rest of his background there on the other side of minute. Oh, I must get in. He is married to the love of his life, whose name is Ginger. And I can't think of the name Ginger without thinking of uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, of course. They have four children and two grandsons. So without further ado, Bruce, welcome back to the other side of midnight. I, I think you're probably the most recent of the return guests that I've ever booked because tonight I wanted to talk about the other side, not of, of midnight, but of American history. Well, well, thank you, Richard. I'm, I'm glad to be back. And, it, you know, in this time, talk uh, a little bit more about my day job. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to put on your other hat, your uh, mortar board, and before we get into that, I'd, I'd like, given someone who walks in two worlds, because you walk in this other set of dimensions, uh, which deal with consciousness, with beings, aliens, with secrets, with things that go bump in the night, with phenomenology that is not admitted to by mainstream science. You know, I, 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 I kind of love Averill's demurred comments things we don't understand um <laughs> if i was being really 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 blunt i would say they're all lying through their teeth and they kind of have to at this point because if they're going to avoid an extraordinary excruciating um retrospective you know pillorying for what the government has been hiding since 1947 if not before they all kind of have to pretend oh my look at that isn't that interesting? Well, we never knew that. So what is, what is your reaction to this conference in particular? Because I think it's, it's so McLuhan-esque, where it was held. The National Cathedral, I mean, pun intended, for God's sake. 
<laughs> have you no decency, Mr. So and so? No, I think no, it's 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 very appropriate for the big the big picture. The big, here. big, 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 yes. See, I believe yeah. and I'll I'll give you my prejudice. I think that it's it's not because of energy or because of national security or because of a hidden physics. I think the real reason the UFO phenomenon has been deep sixed and marginalized and trashed and lied about vigorously for the last, you know, 60 plus years is because it's a doorway opening between our reality and other dimensional realities. And we're never, ever, ever supposed to cross that threshold. And something is now forcing us to open that door. Yeah, exactly. I think you, you hit it on the head. And uh, I would, uh, I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to mention the name, but there's a, a, a prominent person, in, a government person, who uh, spoke privately to a friend of mine. Ah, okay. And uh, didn't, I didn't hear it directly, but through a friend of mine. Uh, and he uh, told me that this government person said uh, what, what they say in public is, is not what they told him. And what, what they told him was that there is a conflict going on between different groups of hyperdimensional beings, ETs, whatever you want to call aliens, and that we're kind of caught in the middle. Oh. This has been going on for some time. And when you hear the well, guy hang on, talk, hang on, hang on, hang on, because that's one of our models. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there, yeah. remember we're going to talk a lot about Star Trek tonight. Remember, yeah. remember the original series Star Trek where uh, oh, yeah. the Enterprise, you know, gets to a planet and they beam down, and there's this incredible internecine war going on between the Chai Coms and the Ams yeah. Ams Ams something or other. The the, the uh, yeah the Coombs and the Yangs. Yes, yes, yeah, Coombs and the Yangs. And the Yangs. Yes, yeah. yes. Which of course was very thinly veiled, um, yeah. you know, Chinese communists and and Yankees, Yankees and yeah. and uh, oh, Gene was excoriated for that script, as he was mm-hmm. for a number of scripts, but he got it through the censors. You know, Miss Priscilla Goodbody, remember Johnny Carson used to keep talking about the NBC censors, <laughs> Miss Priscilla Goodbody, got it through the censors, and he got it on television in a way in the 1960s that was unheard of in yeah. any other format or, or forum. So the idea that we're kind of a backwater nowheresville caught in the middle of something so much bigger that kind of ebbs and flows across this part of the, uh, you know, Sagittarius spiral arm of the galaxy is, is perfectly within the model. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, there's the one thing I was, I was looking at, uh, I was going to mention to you is these, um, you know, that my main focus is foreign policy, you know, specifically U.S. foreign policy, but foreign policy in general. And there's these cycles in, in history. And there's these great cycles, you know, the long cycles, and then there's the short cycles. And one of them we just started on uh, just now, which was, uh, and I've talked to my students since as long as I've been teaching you know, at, at the university level, about 24 years uh, or longer, actually, since, uh, yeah, about 24 years, I guess. But um, 
that uh, every 40 years or so, we have a paradigm shift in our political system. The center of politics moves, moves one way or the other. And the last one, of course, was the, uh, with, with Ronald Reagan. And now, uh, 40 years later, uh, we have another paradigm shift going on. And it's attempting, it looks like it's attempting to move to left of center, whereas with Ronald Reagan, the conservative revolution, it moved to the right of center. And uh, I, I, I told students that you, you can't really totally predict the, the, the future, but you can prepare based on these cycles. And, and that's, that's a small cycle. That's every 40 years or so. Okay, let, one... let me ask an unfortunate question because I do that yep. a lot. <clears throat> Where does this, this, let's call it the cycle theory of history. Where are the references? Where did that come from? What are you quoting from? Well, I, the, the, this I came up with. I just kind of stumbled on it as I was you know, studying and teaching American history. But where I got this from was actually Paul Kennedy. Uh, the, uh, uh, he was a, uh, I, I think he was at Harvard or Yale, a, a history professor. He wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Great Nations mm. in, in the 80s, the late 80s. And uh, this talks about the hegemonic powers, you know, the number one powers on Earth they rise and fall and there's a certain predictability to it and there's a cycle to it. It's a, a longer cycle. And of course we're, I think most people realize that we're in the, the decline and there's other countries, probably, you know, China is it probably will be maybe eventually will take over as the hegemonic power. So it's from that, uh, that book and a lecture that I heard that he did at the Nobel Institute when I was in Oslo in Norway, <clears throat> Uh, I got to talk to him a little bit, and uh, that's kind of where I said, well, I'm going to look at other cycles, too. And since I'm focusing on American history, I'm going to look at America. And it seems to, to hold true that about every 40 years, that's, uh, I guess, 10 presidential terms, uh, there is a, a, a need for a change. And the interesting thing is it's not just like an abrupt change, like it just goes from one system to the next. There's a transitional uh, uh, presidency before. Now with Reagan, it was the Carter presidency, which was just a one-term presidency. A lot of trans, there's a transitional presidency from the, you know, the end of the Vietnam War and the Watergate, you know, thing. And, and, uh, and the interesting thing before, uh, this election, of course, was the, uh, the, you know, the, the Trump presidency, which I think is a very transitional presidency. And similar to Jimmy Carter's. Now, what the interesting is, that I don't think Jimmy Carter would like to be compared to Donald Trump and Donald Trump probably <laughs> wouldn't want to be compared to Jimmy Carter. But nonetheless, they served a transitional role paradigm shift, which is kind of interesting. So it just, it, you know, that's right. So that's where the model originated was with Paul Kennedy. So I have to, you know, but that was uh, you know, looking at world history and hegemonic. Powers OK, did you ever hear the name Edward Dewey? Edward Dewey. Yeah. Uh, I, no, I've heard oh, of Peter du Dewey. Oh, he du was like the first guy killed, first American killed in the Vietnam War. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Edward Dewey. You're, you're going to love to follow this up, you know, this mm -hmm. coming week. Edward Dewey was an economist who was hired by uh, Hoover toward the end of the transition between Hoover and FDR's first term. Mm -hmm. And Hoover was a really bright guy. In fact, he was a good guy, but he was stuck. He was so stuck in the past that government should not get involved. It shouldn't intervene. 
it was supposed to be at best a kind of a very distant and not very good referee, very distant. Right. But he did hire Dewey, and Dewey, his, his mandate from the president, it was directly from the president, was find out what the hell is happening and why the greatest nation on earth, the United States, is going through hell in a handbasket. In yeah. other words, the foundations of you know, the crash, uh, the global economic ripples that happened, all of this he put on Dewey. <clears throat> and Dewey, it turns out, was a guy who really could think outside the box. And he started looking at cycles, starting with cycles of history, but then branching into cycles of biology in the total global ecosphere uh, circa the you know 1930s. Mm-hmm. And he founded, ultimately, when he left government, he founded a nonprofit private institution called the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. And it's Dewey's work that maps so exquisitely on our work on hyperdimensional physics, because the thing that Dewey found, which he was shocked and so embarrassed to have found, was that history and all of these sub-cycles, up to and including you know, the, the, the wholesale price of pig iron and the number of sunspots on the sun and all kinds of disparate things that all appear to be in synchronization are part of what he said with abject horror appears to be some kind of cosmic astrology. Mm-hmm. And, and he was terrified of his <laughs> independent discovery that life on Earth, used in the largest possible sense, both human and biological life, the animal kingdom, et cetera, et cetera, as well as economic cycles, as well as all kinds of sub-cycles, all appear to be part of a chartable set of internested cycles that are all going on simultaneously, rising and falling, causing beat frequencies, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that incredible database of really good research started by Dewey is found in the archives of the Foundation for the Study of Cycles. Hmm. Interesting. Long before uh, this guy at Harvard. Right, right. Who probably tripped over it, and because it was astrology, even though it was incredibly, uh, you know, Dewey went to great lengths to try to divorce it from astrology. Mm-hmm. It's what it was, because it, it mapped perfectly, and all kinds of things like the 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 migration cycles of links compared to the stock price of coal and stuff like that. So, given that the hyperdimensional model says of all of these cycles are modulated by the physical rotations and spins of the major masses of this solar system in concert with our orbit of the galaxy, right there is a huge database to go back and map. And of course, there have been other authors, and I think Dewey himself went and found other people who had looked at cycles and mapped a whole bunch of interesting cycles that normally would be very hard to tease out of modern data because these guys, particularly in Europe, have been looking quietly at this, it turns out, for, you know, like a couple hundred years. Yeah. Yeah, there, I mean, no, I, I am going to look more into 
to Edward Dewey. I, I didn't I didn't know that, and that's that seems to it fits very nicely. The the the, the other thing that I well I I just want to tell you this. I was in, inspired last time we spoke, last time I was on the show. Uh, I'm starting to write uh, an article, a short article, maybe an opinion piece. It'll turn out to be kind of directed towards my academic colleagues mm-hmm. about about what I've been doing with my life since uh, my friend Gene, as I said last time, convinced me to start telling my stories, everything that's happened to me that I've been afraid to talk about previously. Yeah, by the way, one and of the major turning points is 2016. 2016, yeah, of course, exactly. Of course, you know. And Had so I, I, I started writing this article inspired by our conversation last time to, uh, to help them, to ease them, to assure them It'll be okay. <laughs> now we'll see how it goes, but uh, you know I have to do the uh, you know the elephant in the room kind of thing to inoculate myself at the beginning of the article, and uh, you know like like comedians usually do to win over well, the room. Well, you might actually know? start it with a great quote from FDR: <laughs> "We have nothing to fear but fear itself." Exactly, because it's yeah. a fear of the unknown. Once it's chartable, once it's a science, once it's predictive then the fear for an academic should go away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And once, so anyway, that I, I started working on that. I'm not sure where it's going to go wow. or end up or whatever, but I was inspired. So I wanted to thank you for that. Well, thank you. That, that, that inspiration. And uh, the other thing I wanted to say was that uh, the, uh, in going back into the 1800s in, in America, the lead up to the civil war, there's a lot of interesting and very kind of, frankly, disturbing parallels to what uh, we're going through right now. Oh, really? And it's actually, you know, the, the, the rise of spiritualism. And, uh, you know, that was a, uh, a, you know, that happened, you know, with the Fox sisters back in the early 1800s. And then it was a really big thing before the, 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 the Civil War. So the, 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 there was so many divisions, and by 1850, there were so many divisions. There was a division between, obviously, North and South. There was a division between the rich and poor, between the East and West, male and female, native-born versus newcomer, religious versus non-religious. And if you look at that, I mean, these are the same – you might add a few more divisions that we have that you mentioned you know, in, in our divided country – actually divided world, but let's just talk about the U.S. Uh, these same divisions are, are apparent now and are seemingly getting stronger and uh, could be, like you know, President Reagan said, that uh, this quote-unquote alien threat or whatever could, could unite us, not only here in the United States, but maybe in the, in, in the world. But what the interesting parallel is that, uh, is that we were going through very similar things prior to our own civil war in, in of course, in 1861. It broke out. Actually, it broke out before that in Kansas, so <laughs> in the 1850s. Hmm. It started. Bleeding Kansas, as they call it. Yeah, I remember that uh, dimly from uh, from you know history. Um, <laughs> let let us go back to the recent conference. Again, yeah. you know, valet's perception is amazing. I'm going to try to get Jock. I haven't talked to Jock in years, but he's been really, you know, a, a incredibly far sighted, uh, you know, uh, future historian and all this. 
And when he said all these apparently separate fields are really all the same thing, mm-hmm. God, was he right? And I know that, that from both hands on, you know, scientific inquiry as well as, you know, the various very bizarre things that have happened uh, to me personally after Robin died. And there's mm-hmm. there's nothing like personal experience to really kind of heighten your perceptivity and sensitivity and kind of paying attention. It's it's amazing how personal stuff gets gets your attention. So let's yeah. let us go back to that conference. Um, as I've been pursuing this this research into you know ET artifacts, not here but other places in the solar system, grading into who built them grading into how are we related to these beings and my conclusion is that we're talking a very extended and very ancient family that mm-hmm. we're kind of like the poor cousins that have been cut off we're not talking alien aliens we're talking ets the mm-hmm. semantic difference is ets can be human but hang their hat on mars whereas mm-hmm. real aliens do not share our dna so when the church said a few years ago that uh, you know no lesser light than the pope himself said that he would freely baptize aliens well mm-hmm. if you've been a catholic as i have been part of church dogma is you can only baptize humans members of the human family who have gone through the human tragedy and salvation of jesus christ etc 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 so that right there is an affirmation of the ET model as, you know, cousins, uh, kin, brethren, in a, in a way that is so strong, only, you know, slightly less uh, less uh, <clears throat> captivating than the first major conference on our future in space is being held, where the DNI is saying there are ETs at the National Cathedral. <laughs> you know, I, I it. it uh... After the last show, also I was in, inspired. I talked to, you know, I do these spirit walks and I talked to uh, my uh, ancient alien mystic uh, advisor, Anzar, and I, I I asked him a question. This is uh, kind I, of the shape-shifting ET that yes, has manifested yeah. in several different forms to you. Yes, and helped me and actually rescued me in one case and maybe more that, that I don't even know about yet. But um, I asked him, I said what do you prefer to be called? You know, it's, you know, ET, alien, extraterrestrial. And he said, uh, uh, how about a long lost relative? Oh, good grief. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. So that it just, that, it just, uh, you know, we're on the same uh, wavelength there. It just, it was kind of funny that he, that he said that it reminded me of when I asked a, a native American friend of mine many years ago, uh, he's a Vietnam vet, um, author you know good guy his name was phil red eagle and i asked him i said uh, uh what do you prefer to be called indian or native american he said i i prefer to be called phil <laughs> <laughs> i love <laughs> that one a great answer <laughs> yeah super super yeah. answer okay so before the break let me kind of introduce yep. what i want to you know get into um we have been taught those of us who kind of followed the ufo phenomenon for many many decades We've been taught that we were all by our lonesome until some July night during a major thunderstorm, an alien spacecraft uh, hit by lightning crashed in the southwestern deserts not very far from me here and launched the current modern history of UFOs. 
to which I would say <clears throat> garbage. Because my evidence, separate from the UFO community, and I use that kind of you know tongue-in-cheek, um, there's nothing more divided than the UFO community, unless it's Trump supporters and Democrats and the libs and all that, um, is that we have been part and parcel of interaction with extraterrestrial entities, both in three dimensions, and now I will expand that to other dimensions for probably as long as we have been a species. And the current isolation, which I guess is about to be broken, if we can believe the, the DNI, is really an artificial effort to kind of, you know, uh, dam the river up to keep the inevitable from happening as the cycles of the physics keep changing. What do you think? Yeah, I no, I I I agree with you. I, I agree with you that uh, it's it, it's what Anzar has told me is the uh, leap of consciousness that is part of an overall era of reconversion, where we reconnect with our our ancient uh, you know ancient humans, you know that understood in many ways and had a closer connection than than we do to what we are now coming to realize again. Uh, returning to it, you know, the Native Americans called them star people. So, you know, we're we're coming back to that, and I, I, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it. Although I'm not, uh, you know, I, I I know there is there there is going to be some adjustment problems. You think? <laughs> <laughs> some some pretty big adjustment problems. A series of calamities, as as uh, Anzar has said. Yeah, so he's, no, he's really you. saying that it's going to be calamities as opposed to speed bumps. Hmm. Yeah, he calls it a series of, of calamities. Yeah. Hmm. Well, one person's calamity is something which gets another person's attention, or, or needs collective action to solve. And yeah. usually, problems that require collective action tend to bring people together. So I tell you what, let's that, hold it there. We're true. at the uh, top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, back by, uh, well, I'd be lying if I said by public demand because uh, nobody knew I wanted to have him back this, this quickly. He's going to wear his history hat tonight, his professor hat, and we're going to talk about in the next coming couple hours the idea of extraterrestrial, extra-dimensional, extra-temporal intervention in American history. And is there a discernible, provable pattern? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not, under pain of ignorance, touch that dial. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, November 13th, to the other side of midnight. What I wanted to talk about with Bruce tonight is the idea, oh, and I shouldn't do that. That's not, no, I did not order that. Nope, sorry. Sorry for the interruption. See, where was I? What I wanted to do tonight was I wanted to take a kind of a big picture look at American history through a separate lens. What if this experiment, this unique thing that we've been doing for 240 plus years that Lincoln called the last best hope of mankind and a recent politician said the last best hope of earth which I thought was interesting for a nation state politician to think in terms of the planet as a whole suppose it has not been grown in kind of splendid isolation Suppose it hasn't sprung from the genius of the founders of people like Madison and Jefferson and Washington alone. What if we had help? So who would you turn to for that kind of perspective on American history, which has always seemed to me and to an awful lot of other people who speak of American exceptionalism as something different, something unusual, something unprecedented in modern human history, and by modern I mean the last several thousand years. What if there's more than a speck of truth between the idea that, yeah, we really are exceptional because we've had exceptional teachers Okay, Bruce, that was your opening line. What do you think? Am I nuts or <laughs> or what? I, I w- no, I was I was just contemplating. I, I, I enjoyed the eloquence of it. Uh, you know, what I was thinking of is the, the, the founding fathers, so-called founding fathers, um, although I still call them the founding fathers. A lot of people, I, I guess that term is not so popular anymore, but that's okay. Uh, I guess I'm old school. Uh, I think they were all deists, if I'm not mistaken so their kind of view of of religion was kind of the absent clockmaker or watchmaker or whatever uh and they you know they did believe as thomas jefferson outlined and i i think uh you know this idea of of uh separation of church and state i think they were not divinely inspired but inspired by uh somebody other than just their, the, you know, the enlightenment itself. 
which they were men of the Enlightenment, of course, historically speaking. But I, I think there was more to it than that. So I, I agree with that. I do agree with that. I think there was more to it. Uh, the, 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 the genius that came together was uh, inspired, very much inspired. And when I think about just if I look at it just personally, you know, because I really m- very much believe in and uh, the impact of personal history. I mean, where would we be? I mean, we'd, every historical event has has to do with people, individual people, sometimes collectively, sometimes individually uh, working together or working against each other. And that's really what forms history. But uh, this idea that, you know, I'm in contact with this ancient alien mystic, who were they in contact with? Mm. You know, and, and it's certainly guiding my life in a a positive direction. I I don't, I don't attribute it all to myself. Everything that I, that I do, I don't, you know, say, you know, I don't have that big of a, of an ego to say that everything great or successful that I've done is just, is just my own, uh, that there is an inspiration. And I know as, as a, a, an artist, you know, I'm an artist and a writer, there, there is that kind of inspiration that, that, that comes. Wait, 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 you're an artist. Well, comic book artist, but I, I'm I'm not good enough to actually be an artist for a, 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 a for a, you know my published comic books. That's why I, I hire other people to do it. <laughs> so you do the rough sketches, and then someone else. Yes, I do the rough sketches. Yeah, I, I lay out things, but the uh, you know like Gary Dumb, who's been doing this since the 70s, he has a better sense for sequential art than I do. Although I have a pretty good sense of it, but. Uh, he he helps me, and then mm. he does the the final art. But I kind of give him the I call them mock-ups, you know. That's something because because I remember sending you something a couple of three days ago, and I said, could you do a sketch of this? And <clears throat> there was deafening silence, and I thought, oh, I've embarrassed him because he can't draw. <laughs> no, I I, I I I do draw, and I enjoy it. I've drawn since I was oh. since I was a little kid, but. I, uh, uh, yeah, so I, no, I, I, I agree with what you said. Yeah, I do. Do you remember, and maybe you don't because maybe not true at all, but there is this, which I've kind of felt was apocryphal story of the mysterious, uh, gentleman at the constitutional convention, um, or, or the, 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 the Congress that created the declaration and then the constitution of this kind of wise, old senior person who kind of appeared and then disappeared and was was a key part of the structuring of the three branches and the you know no single point failure of of uh you know competing interests and and uh uh checks and balances right right checks and balance i i don't have much information on i you know i think i've heard something about this but i i can't speak with any authority on it but it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> well it's kind of like i i i you heard of course of george washington's famous dream at valley forge right and we now know that was a fake because it was really created in the 1920s but and I, I, I've talked to you know another one of our resident historians about this at some length. That does not obviate the information. Mm-hmm. It just it just tacked on a well-known source, i.e., Washington, so that it would be believed. You know the whole credibility thing. If, yeah. if Joe Blow had said this, who would care? Well, if you attach Washington's name to it, it gets a whole other level of scrutiny and 
people taken seriously. Well, this so-called Washington's dream envisions the time, the dark clouds, the threatened uh, of the underpinnings of the republic like we've never experienced, not even during the Civil War, um, that we're going through right now. Yeah. No, I, I – uh, well, this, this, you know, this idea of catching a glimpse of other, of other dimensions, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it can be an inspiration and, and can get you to, to accomplish incredible things beyond your, you know, superhuman things, that, you know, intellectually or even, you know, I guess physically for that matter. But uh, the, the documenting of it or the admission of it, uh, puts you, then we talked about this last time, in great peril, especially if you're in a, a public life or a political life or an academic life, scientific, whatever. So uh, I don't think people will, not very many will will talk about, you know, their where this actually is coming from. Well, I've been very, <laughs> very negative on the idea of channeled information and mm-hmm. extraterrestrial sources and mm-hmm. folks like your friend Anzar and whatever, because, mm-hmm. and I've said this over and over again publicly, if a total stranger stopped you on the street and said, I got the secret to the universe, mm-hmm. you know, you'd maybe you'd give them five bucks and keep walking. Yeah. But because somebody doesn't have a body, we suddenly imbue them with magical Godhead knowledge, a direct pipeline to the ultimate, you know, to, to, you know, fact with a capital F. And I'm very, very suspicious. The reason that I'm acting much more convivial toward this, these sources these days is because I have cross-correlating information, totally separate, which leads to the same set of conclusions. And that independent, remember we talked the last time, how do people know what they know? Yeah. And most people don't have a process. I've got a process and it appears to work because it, pre- it can predict when you're really doing it good, when you know, you know, you're, you're kind of in, in the in the groove, it can predict the next data point. So, yeah. like for instance, this communication, other dimensional, I have found from my personal experience and experiments and all that, is not constant. Like you can't turn on the radio any time of the day or night and get a signal. It varies both in terms of time of day, as well as time of the week, as well as time of the year. And so you have these windows where the bandwidth can be larger than other times. And that is what, remember we had this discussion last week and I said, are your conversations, um, are they regular or do you find there are windows where it's more easily accessible than others? And you said, much to my uh, affirmation, there are windows. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and this is also, you know, when the government had their operation Stargate uh, or project Stargate, when they were doing the remote viewing to spy on the, our enemies uh, and uh, they were found out that there were certain, you know, depending on the viewer, some of them were more skilled than others, more accurate than others. Uh, But it also depended on, day to day uh sometimes is better than others they mm-hmm. they had a predictability to it they figured out you know that a certain person is better in the morning or in the afternoon or in certain weather conditions 
you know, so all these variables, they figured, they figured that out. And of course, uh, did they ever they claim, use celestial alignments, geometry? I, I don't remember words, reading astrology. about that, but I, it would surprise me if they didn't. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. And, and, uh, you know, even though the, the government it, uh, officially says, well, of course, we can't go by that, but, you know, they say <laughs> that they don't, they don't use remote viewers anymore. I have personal knowledge of one person uh, who is very, very active and very, a very good remote viewer who, uh, it sounds like a pretty cool thing, you know, being able to see what's going on half a world away and mm-hmm. and have all this information. But once you get into that that position, you you don't have very much freedom. Like you can't travel abroad because obviously you know the the uh, our adversaries know who that person is. And, uh, and well, and they would, when, when, they when, would like to when our guys him. try this, do they ring alarm bells by the guys or gals on the other side? Yeah, and, yes. and it becomes like a signature, like oh, so and so is on the line again. Yeah, just like the the snipers in World War II. You mm. know the uh, what was that movie? Um, oh, the Eastern Front movie with uh, Jude Law and uh, I can't remember the name. But there was this. There was the the German sniper and the Russian sniper, and they they kind of locked. Oh yeah, Ed, what's his name? Was the actor? Um, oh, yeah. what is his name? He's 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 he starred in so many great movies, and of course I'm blanking. Ed Harris. Ed Harris. Ed Harris. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So so anyway, the, yeah, I think you're 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 right. So they, um, but, but but anyway, I mean, it's a very active program. They're still even though they well, it would be stupid for them to put out a cover story. It was it's totally absurd. I mean. Part of the the hold that we know the government has on us is mm-hmm. a is a is a legacy of credibility. Yeah. When you basically reveal that you've had this remote viewing program during the height of the Cold War and it you know did all kinds of cool stuff, and then you just kind of you know close it down, nobody, no thinking person is going to say, why would you throw away a tool that's that's working? Yeah. That's exactly. dumb. It's absurd. It totally destroys. Your credibility to claim something which any thinking person after 30 seconds would say well they wouldn't do that of course it's still going on it just went black yeah. again yeah and 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 some of the people got burned out you know because of the how they were being used like you know the example i think and i've talked to him uh lynn buchanan who he also lives i think he lives in Almogordo. uh he uh um I talked to him on the phone. I didn't visit his house, but anyway, he his last uh, uh, one of his last sessions involved uh, it was Mohammed uh, Gaddafi, you know, the Libyan. Oh, during, during the Reagan years. And he he was asked to do a remote viewing session, and he uh, was able to identify where he was, but he also identified that there was a young girl, I guess, in the same building that he was remote viewing. And uh, they went ahead and launched a, uh, you know, an attack, a bombing. Yeah, they they, they sent the B-1s on a very long flight to bomb yeah. Libya, and they bombed the tent, yeah. and they destroyed, I think it was his wife. And and his and this young girl. Mm. And he said it was so horrific, the the imagery of that, and, you know, that he was responsible for, you know, I mean, I, you know, the, the killing of this, this young girl that he, he decided that was it. So he wouldn't, wouldn't wow. do it anymore. 
it, it that that was his his breaking point. But now he says what he does is he spends all his time looking for missing children. That's what he uses his remote viewing for, which is a very noble effort when you think about it. But uh, but there you know it's still a very active program and uh, and is part of our you know the the uh, intelligence gathering which uh, involves human intelligence signals intelligence and mm. you know well in a world viewing, where everybody is doing it and you know yeah. if we're doing it you know this talent isn't limited to to u.s citizens you know they're all doing it and that actually mm-hmm. you know it's like the old uh, um you know rationale for spy satellites um i remember having a very avid discussion is one of my first you know um, activities when i joined cbs when i was cronkite science advisor i had a uh, very interesting discussion several with the uh, leading aviation editor at aviation week in space technology uh, mm-hmm. phil class and i told him things that got him so excited that he wound up writing a book about how spy satellites had basically saved civilization. They kept us from having nuclear war. Mm -hmm. So in this arena, if there's more than one set of remote viewers on all sides, that's a good thing. Because if everybody knows what everybody else is doing, then there cannot be surprise. You know, Pearl Harbor is is much less uh, uh, operative than it would be otherwise. Yeah, it gives you a balance of power or or a, uh, a, a yeah what and 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 you know with nuclear missiles they called you know, mad you know, mutually assured destruction. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so of course what I just said is all you know made lie by the fact that how the hell did nine eleven happen? <laughs> Why didn't anybody have a warning? Yeah. Or. Well, at, or, yeah, yeah, there there were lots of warnings, but just they were uh, supposedly not heeded. You know, not supposedly. So, <laughs> who wanted us in this post, you know, Department of Homeland Security? I hate the name Homeland. Sounds so eerily Nazi and German. Who wanted us in this world and realized they had to have the equivalent of Kristallnacht in New York? where those major buildings came down from an enemy, an exterior threat. Yeah. In other words, that gets back to who is manipulating American history. We're going to keep it limited just to the U.S. for the time being. And to what ends? And is anybody, apart from this, watching the store and raising alarms of, shall we say, extraordinary influences? Yeah, I, I, I think there are uh, these influences that are that are going on, uh, but that you know, there's also the counter uh, to that; those that are helping us as well. And uh, but it's there are where uh, the, if you want to, I'll oversimplify it. Maybe you know the forces of of light versus the forces of darkness, where there will be uh, you know give and take where the forces of light can't always prevent uh, bad things from happening. Uh, and sometimes they, they break through. Well, and, you've uh, had this, you know, really interesting set of experiences going back to when you were four, for those who may have missed last week, kind of quickly reiterate, we got about 10 minutes till the bottom of the hour. 
yeah. we got some we got some really cool images in your section of radio with pictures. So uh, this will give it, I think, some solidity. Uh, so kind of reprise that story because that's a prelude to some of the things I want to get into in the next uh, uh, hour or two. Yeah. So uh, in those in those pictures, if I can refer to them, yeah, by all means. Yeah, so uh, there's one picture there. I think it's number number uh, five, uh, Solheim in winter. So Solheim is actually, that's my last name, but it's also the name of this farmhouse that I mentioned earlier that my brother and I still own in northern Norway on this island 200 miles above the Arctic Circle. Mm. And that home that you see there, the, the, uh, the bottom window on the left-hand side uh, is the kitchen. And that is where this incident took place. The, the first one I remember, uh, I'll use your terminology, hyper, uh, you know, hyperdimensional uh, experience. It was, a, a, I called it an angelic healing experience. I was very sick. They thought I was going to die. And I had this angelic had, healing Had experience. you just stayed out and gotten frostbite and were almost frozen to death? Uh, no, it was, it was more than that. It was more than that uh, because I, I, I was I was dressed warmly and everything, so I I had uh, you know the proper clothing and everything. Uh, so it was it was some kind of an illness, and uh, or had, I just thought I've of had it. medical people say I, you know it sounded like uh, some kind of uh, oh what was uh, rubella or something. I don't know. I've heard. People try to, or, or meningitis. Somebody said, "Oh, it sounds like meningitis or whatever." And where would but, you have gotten that? Yeah, who who knows? Who well, knows? let me but let me I, raise another specter. Yeah. Suppose it was a negative intervention, and you had a positive intervention to counteract it, so you'd wind up being the Bruce Solheim we know tonight. Yes, I, I I think it probably was another rescue. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure it was. You know, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but my my uh, or I mentioned it last time, but not in reference to this. That my eldest brother died in that same house. No, uh, you didn't mention in, that. In, in 1942, he was actually on the on the second floor there, uh, but he got suddenly ill and died at uh, at at age two. And uh, during the war, there wasn't any medicine available, obviously, because the uh, the German troops were on the island and they took basically everything except the basic things they needed to live. But they took medicines and whatever could have helped him. But, yeah, he died in that same house. So it seemed to be some kind of rep- uh, repetition or maybe some force trying to, uh, you know, repeat history there. And uh, I was saved. And uh, but anyway, that's the house. Or. Uh, Something that tried to interrupt your timeline and what you're going to be doing as we go through this transition. Because remember, as soon as this becomes mainstream, people are going to be desperate for leadership to tell them what it's all about. Desperate. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. And and for those that can see these pictures, that picture number three, Bruce in Osa, Osa is the name of the little village. The, those four little kids, I'm the third one, uh, or the second one from the right, third one from the left, with the darker clothing. You notice they're all smiling and happy, and I'm the only one with a very serious adult look on my face. So this was after that incident. Oh, yeah. I think it, it fundamentally changed me. Yeah, you know, those are all my little playmates there. And Yeah, I, when you I click look, on this, it gets much bigger. And Yeah. Boy, you are I, sober. Yeah, I, I look. 
almost like an adult look on my face and uh, the others look very innocent and very, uh, you know, pretty much happy. Uh, but uh, and then picture four is just, uh, you know, time when this happened. But anyway, that was the first that was the Are first, you the uh, guy on the left? In uh, picture number four, number four, I'm the one. Yeah. In dark again, dark clothing. You're not I, smiling. No, I think the other guy is. Yeah, I can. See. No, he's he's typical kid. Happy yeah. in the snow. You're I not look, smiling. I, you look. I, yeah. Kind of suspicious. Like yes. Yes. Suspicious. Really. <laughs> yeah. Who so took that's, that's, who who took the picture? Uh, probably my mom. I would think, or my dad. So you weren't suspicious of the photographer. You just no. So this really was at four years of age a life-changing event. Yeah. When uh, some it, other dimensional presence literally in a night healed you, set into motion everything from that you know from from that point, and it, you know the other the other thing. Yeah, I to where you're now that, writing a letter, an open letter to your colleagues. Dear colleagues, don't be afraid of things that go bump in the night. Yeah, I can be your guide. Between I, in the fact, lines. I had kind of, I had kind of an amusing. Uh, uh, it's a working title for this article or opinion piece. Uh, I, I wrote, um, "ET is phoned home, and we are on the line." Oh, I love it. That's what I. I so I maybe I'll stick with it. I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna I'm. I'll publish it somewhere. I'm not sure. Well, where, but given, I'll, I'll send you a link if I do. Given so. that uh, they even asked me years ago to write an op-ed piece for USA Today, <clears throat> you know, op-ed is opposite the editorial page. Mm-hmm. I would aim high. Given what the DNI has now said, mm-hmm. I would send it to USA Today, to the Wall Street Journal, to the Washington Post, to the New York Times, and let's see who salutes. Yeah. Because this could try. be yeah. your, this could be the reason something saved you when you were four. Yeah. Well, I, I, I know that's why I'm doing the, the work that I'm doing uh, since 2016. That, that is my, my purpose right now, other than taking care of my family, my students, and my, you know, my day job, as I say. <laughs> but there's, there's more to it than that, and that's why we're talking. So we have this mission. That, that happened to coincide. <laughs> well, I don't think it happens anything. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing <laughs> broad outlines of someone, you know, uh, pushing the river. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was, that's, that was the first experience. The, the, the experience, I sent you a couple of pic- like the picture six and seven, uh, the, the rescue where I was uh, trying to, uh, it was in, in, in 1978. I was uh, at a low point in my life. Obviously, I was, I was going to, uh, to off myself. I was going to kill myself. And that was the garage where that incident took place. So picture six and picture seven. So the, oh, uh, my. Where, is, where, that, where, where the sparkling beam looking like yeah. you know, dust specks in a, in, a, in a laser beam entered yeah. your reality. Yeah. That hmm. that is that is the location where where that. Well, it seems to me that someone's nudging you on a path where you can be an important anchor when everything. You know, my grandmother used to have this great line: <clears throat> "When you can keep your head, when all around you they are losing theirs, mm-hmm. then maybe you don't understand the situation." 
<laughs> so they will not understand the situation, but you, because of these decades of experience, are an anchor in two worlds, so aim high. Yeah, think no, I, I will. Times. I, think Wall Street Journal, think Post, think U.S. Hell, if, if USA Today asked me to do an op-ed piece, come on, come on. All right, we are at the bottom of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, and we're having a really interesting conversation about what I would term nodal points in history. Has the United States, this exceptional nation, this exceptional experiment, which of course got off onto a horribly wrong foot and has spent the last 400 years trying to recover, and we're still in recovery. But the concept of this nation is not so much what we are. To me, it's always been what we can become. And when we come back on the other side of the break, I'm going to ask Bruce the next seminal question, which is, if the DNI can sit there at the National Cathedral and talk about the serious possibility that these vehicles, these incidents, these radar tracks, these F-18 encounters are not from here, could be extraterrestrial. Why the hell wasn't this mainstream headlines from coast to coast and around the planet? Doesn't anybody wonder if they're really ETs? What the hell do they mean for all the rest of us in future time, meaning in the next few weeks and months? We'll try to grapple with that on the other side. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and you can bet your dollars to Navy Beans. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, grading into Sunday morning, November 13th, 2021, the other side of midnight, or as we like to call it, the unusual version of the Wild Wild West. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, who we're having, as Kissinger would have said, a wide-ranging conversation. So you really think that I'm not totally wacko and out there, that the development, the creation, development, and, and evolution of this extraordinary experiment was unusual, in fact, I would probably say unique, from the get-go, from the beginning? Yes. I, no, I, I, I do not think that, that, that you're crazy. I think, <laughs> I think you're on to something. And uh, I, I'll go back to, I think it was uh, Samuel Adams when they were talking about the, uh, you know, when did the revolution really begin and the American Revolution. And he said that uh, it began in, in, in the minds of the, of the colonists. Uh, that and I, I'll go back to actually my personal experience, my parents' personal experience, and I I saw how it was for them, uh, you know, as immigrants. Uh, and then when they went back to Norway, uh, my mom and dad both realized that as soon as they stepped on the boat, they were different. Hmm. As soon as they made that decision, got on the boat, they had already become Norwegian Americans. They'd already their identity or, or their, who they were had changed. Cause when we went back to, to Norway in that, when that incident happened uh, in, 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 in 1963 or 62, 62, 63, um, the angelic healing thing, uh, my parents were treated differently as, you know, they were more considered Americans, oh even my. though, even though they were from Northern Norway and, you know, and and uh, so it, it's it, it's rather it's rather interesting. So it almost was like a field thing. They came back, and they they were the green monkeys. They they didn't smell the same. They right. were different. In fact, I, I overheard my one of my aunts saying talking about my parents and me. Was this a Nazi and, aunt? This was not the Nazi aunt. This was the, uh, one of my other aunts. <laughs> Who in their life story can talk about their Nazi aunt? Oh yeah, that's a boy. Oh boy, that's a, a whole other story. But she, uh, the, the other one, her, her sister, uh, she was a little bit older than, still, you know, younger than my father, but uh, older than the youngest one who was the Nazi aunt. Uh, she said, "Oh, those Americans," and she was talking about my mom and dad. And me. Now, I can understand me. I was born in America. Okay, fine. Yeah. You want to call me an American? That's great. I consider myself American. But my parents, I, I consider them Norwegian Americans. And I know Theodore Roosevelt said there shouldn't be any hyphenated Americans. But, man, I grew up with, with two cultures, two languages. Uh, my, my first language wasn't even English. I mean, it was Norwegian because that's what my parents spoke in the house. When I went to school and I, you know, and playing with my playmates, of course, I had to speak English. But uh, so it, it, you know, but they were, they were a hybrid, you know, they, they really were a hybrid and, and actually the language changed uh, the, in, in, in Norway or in uh, Seattle, my dad was a fisherman. So they, the, the Norwegian community there, they had a special uh, name for the language they spoke. They called it halibut English. 
Oh my! Because <laughs> they were halibut fishermen, you know, so they had this part Norwegian, part English, and I, I guess the nearest equivalent would be what people call Spanglish, you know, English and, and Spanish together forms yeah. its own unique thing. So that's kind of what my 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 parents had. So it was a very unique kind of kind of language in, in, in and of itself. And you really have to understand both languages to understand some of the, uh, some of these Norwegian characters that I, you know, that were in my orbit when I was a kid, you know, they were interesting characters to say the least. Uh, and my, my, my mom's brother, eldest brother, my, my uncle, Einar, who passed away and off the coast of, uh, Vancouver Island coming back from Alaska in 1971. I think it was, he, uh, he drowned, while well, the whole crew did on his boat. Oh my God! But uh, well, one of those he was perfect storm scenarios. Yeah, it was very, very bad uh, storm. They had way too much. Uh, I, I guess they were overloaded. I'm not sure why they were overloaded, but because I thought they sold the fish up in Alaska. But anyway, they were overloaded, and uh, the boat went down. No, no trace of it. Wow. And uh, but but man, what a character that guy was! He uh, well, wait, wait. When there was no, tri- you mean they? It's presumed it sank. Right, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. something else could have happened to it. I, I tried to contact him when I took a. We took an Alaska cruise. Well, given your cruise, associations, so. given the family, given your mm-hmm. lineage, given that this stuff seems to run in families in terms of ET interest, mm-hmm. how do we know that the boat sank? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, we don't for sure because there was no. Trace Have you ever and, thought of maybe asking where is he? Well, I, I on this Alaska cruise, I tried to make contact with him and. No and, wait, uh, wait, wait. Was, well, what Alaska cruise? Uh, my uh, my wife Ginger and uh, her sister and her and my mother-in-law. We all took a cruise ah. to Alaska. Uh, departed from Seattle and then up to Alaska. And uh, we went in that passage where he was, as best I could remember what my mom told me. And I tried to make contact with him and I I didn't, I didn't, uh, wasn't successful in it, but I'm going to keep trying. And I'm, uh, he, he was actually my, my godfather too. So that's kind of interesting. Mm. he was very a very interesting character. He he uh he loved highball cocktails <laughs> and he and he wore naked lady ties. Oh know. my god. Just kind of an outrageous character. But, so he um, was one of the deadly catch types before it was television. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Dangerous so, business. Uh, very dangerous. Yeah, that's what my dad did too, and then then he gave that up and and uh, just did the carpentry. You know, m- most of the time, I by the time I was born and growing up, he was just he wasn't fishing anymore, just doing the carpentry. Mm. Well, this is in the yeah. era where they had that huge earthquake, you know, the eight point something or other in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah, in uh, where was it in Ketchikan or Anchorage? Maybe it was Anchorage. Yeah, it was Anchorage. Center. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that the, the yeah that that was an, and it caused a tsunami that hit uh, the West Coast. I know in in Oregon and Washington. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a terrible, a very large earthquake, a lot of destruction. But, Lots of destruction. Okay, yeah. so if you're looking at the sweep of American history. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about nodal points, those moments when people and events and all that kind of come together to create something new, a step function, a 
and Excel, where would you look out from the founding to the present as some of those, shall we say, potential moments of intervention? Both positive and negative? Yes, or just yes, the, by all means. Positive. Well, uh, well, we have to look at the negative because I yeah. think there's huge negative stuff going on now. Yeah. Huge. Yeah, I would say the, you know, the... Um, the compromise in the uh, uh, that we had to do in terms of slavery to get the southern colonies on uh, board with the Constitution, I would say that that was a, a, a kind of a negative. The original a negative. Sin. Yeah, and of course we paid the price for that. We're we're still we're paying, still paying absolutely still paying the price for that. And and I actually have something I wanted to say about the current debate with teaching of history. You know. Uh, critical race theory. I have some interesting ideas on that, but I'll get to that. But anyway, so I, I think that was a uh, certainly a, a, a nodal point and, a, and a, at the very least a missed opportunity to do the right thing, to make the right decision. Whose papers did we just hear about in the last couple, three weeks? Was it, was it uh, Jefferson, who of course was a major slave owner and there was Sally yep. Hemings and all that. So the hypocrisy... Yep drips yep. from his his quill pen but yeah there was a draft i think of the constitution that i saw the other day where he literally was talking about eliminating slavery from the founding mm. documents of the of the nation yeah at that early I, I, time i i it wouldn't surprise me uh because he had to hold two ideas in his head at the same time and and that was that's hard to do, you know, that duality, uh, because I think he was a, a, a brilliant man. You know, he was, uh, that was John F. Kennedy. Oh, have you read John Meacham's uh, story of Jefferson, the autobiography mm -hmm. or the biography rather? No. no oh, you've got to go get it. You know, yeah. A, John, I'd love to have John on the show. He writes brilliantly. He's an incredible researcher. He knows how to talk television. He knows how to not yeah. take himself that seriously, so you take him really seriously. And this book is a tour de force on Jefferson. Oh, that that would be cool. I was just thinking that that famous quote by John F. Kennedy when he was dining. Oh, I love that one. Tell everybody what it was. Yeah, he was dining apparently at the White House with all these Nobel laureates. Yep, and he said, yep. He had a Nobel the, laureate uh, dinner. Yeah, and it, he said this is the uh, the 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 greatest gathering of 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 you know geniuses or 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 intellectual or intellectual power since jefferson dined alone yes <laughs> that's what yeah. i love yeah. that one yeah i'm, I'm a big I, I really like kennedy i know he had a lot of faults but um well anyway, they're all there's, there's people another, See, this is where there. bruce this <laughs> is where you know we put these people yeah. on pedestals which are of course absurd it's it, it's unfair yeah, it really is. And, and it did and even not Martin used Luther to King. be that way. Yeah. There used to be yeah. we would segregate public life from private life. Yeah. Now it's all tabloid, which, of course, is CIA. Um, and anything goes, social media, Twitter, it's all a melange. And again, no one knows how to figure anything or anyone out because there are no, you know, Rod Serling, sorry, no signposts up ahead to show you how to figure it out, who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Because it's all yeah. become this 
morass, this evened out nonsense of everything is equal, and it's not equal. And Kennedy is a brilliant example. Kennedy kept us from dying in a thermonuclear conflagration while yeah. he was chasing Marilyn Monroe. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> and, and, and God knows who else. Yeah, yeah well, of I mean, course, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. The, the Chicago mob boss's girlfriend. Yep. And, yeah. Yep. Probably that's part of the reason he, he didn't make it. But uh, but yeah, I mean, there's there there are yeah, there's other uh, points that I can I can think of. You know, the the uh, the, the presidency of of Andrew Jackson, who's much maligned now. You know, they want to replace him on the on the twenty, but actually he he formed the Democratic Party, and uh, and and tried in his own way, although he was a man of his times and and obviously no friend to the Native Americans. But you know, to to, uh, to to democratize our system more, you know. Uh, and I was thinking of you know, actually, early American history isn't much as modern American, but um, and, the, and then of course, uh, how the, do you uh, define modern? World War Two and World po- post post Civil War. Oh, okay. But you know what's interesting now? It's it <laughs> when I started teaching. There's a lot of stuff that's happened. So the modern history has gotten longer and longer, and <laughs> early American history stayed the same. So that's why we're all talking about oh, we got to make middle history and early and middle and. See and the later. thing I remember about that era, which has struck me as kind of apropos of Jeff Bezos and Musk being in their little contra temp. Um, the biggest thing that happened besides the Union being saved during the Civil War, was Lincoln's decision to commission the Transcontinental Railway. Yeah. And you you know the old cliche. Before the railway, the United States was impossible. After the railway, it was inevitable. Yeah. And I see these bridges, these stepping stones to civilian occupation of space you know, low Earth orbit, the moon and beyond as even a bigger dynamic lever to what's got to happen to open the system so we save the planet than the development of the transcontinental railway. Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you if you just look at it on on its surface, just the amazing uh, part of that was it it shortened the travel distance uh, from uh, eight months, six to eight months to eight days. <laughs> and when yeah. you think about that, you know, it was, it was, it was just a, a, a marvel of, of engineering and, and probably we had some help there too. I'm, I'm sure because well, there was you know, nothing f- but scandals and, and crooks involved with it, but somehow we got it, we got it done. Well, with, you know, a lot of hard work. And, well, it involves human beings doing what humans yeah. being do being very messy. Or, former slaves and civil war veterans and Irish immigrants and Chinese immigrants, everybody pulling together, working together. Yep. Um, there, 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 there's another cliche that's, that's, that's out there that, that comes to mind and I've lost my train of thought that that happens sometimes. So, um, but yeah, the idea that during the war, during the literal to the death struggle to keep the union as one nation on the continent, this was going on, you know, the kind of uh, build back better bill of its time, because yeah. by knitting the country, by knitting San Francisco and New York and Washington to eight days. Oh, now I remember what I was going to say. Physicists normally 
only get interested in things that are like a factor of 10. I was taught that at a very early age. You know, we're only interested in factors of 10. Well, to go from eight months to eight days is more than a factor of of hundreds. So that's that's the magnitude of the step function that created this magical, and I use that term very advisedly, experiment that solidified the experiment so it could flower, it could develop, it could matriculate, it could blossom in a way that would never have happened without that literal steel rail knitting two coats together. Yeah. And I you know, I, I just remembered something that I think is applies to what's going on now and into our future that I was told early on in my uh, academic career that the uh, lines of communication follow the lines of transportation. So when you think of the transcontinental, it wasn't just the transportation, but is also the uh, the telegraph. Yep. That was able to, you know, you didn't need the Pony Express. You, you know, you could get your messages much quicker. Uh, and then uh, uh, when you think about the the internet. And now you think about this leap of consciousness where we could live in a world where telepathy is much more accessible to most people. So there's this line of communication. Depending on how the physics you know, evolves. Yes. Yeah. And you've got to be open to it. You yep. If, yep. If you, and, and again, that goes back to your role because you've got one foot in both camps. And if this op-ed piece appears in some place like USA Today or the Wall Street Journal as a presage of what the – going back to what I said before the break, how come no one follows up when the head of you know national intelligence says there may be extraterrestrials? It's oh, like, I know. It's like, okay. It's like Brookings has ultimately succeeded beyond its wildest dreams. Do you know what I'm referring to when I say Brookings? The, the, the Brookings Institute? The Brookings or, Report, yeah. done oh, Brookings under report. A, a, a contract to NASA. When mm-hmm. Eisenhower formed NASA in 1958, in the summer of 58, in July, which took place then, you know, formalized in October, one of the first things NASA did was set up something called the Long Range Committee, thinking mm-hmm. in terms of long-range futures. And they gave a contract to Brookings which was this think tank just up the street, in essence, in in Washington, to look at the out years of all the factors of American culture and economics and business and education and even meteorology that would be impacted by a space program. Mm -hmm. And they included a section in the back dealing with the discovery of extraterrestrial life. And then they said... But this won't happen for 20 years. I mean, (laughs) how they knew the time, uh, which, of course, came and went because the bad guys got in and they decided the 20-year time horizon was going to be never forever. Yeah. And so that timeline got deep six. But there was literally a timeline published and they talked about, get this, this is a NASA document from Brookings saying that would become likely – through the discovery of ruins on the moon, on Mars, and Venus. Mm-hmm. Ruins. Yeah. Which, of course, is what I've been doing for the last 40-some years, trying right, to get right. NASA to pay attention to their own damn document. Now, another part of the document said 
that this revolution, this sudden awareness, sudden over you know generation, could only take place if the culture was properly prepared through incredibly exhaustive, redundant media, film, television, commercials, newspapers, books, magazines, education, the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. And what have we lived through? Starting with your and my favorite television series that now yep. just by chance happens to have an incredibly important deep dive documentary series on the History Channel going back into what was in Gene's favorite mind to create something that is going to transition us from fiction into reality up to and including maybe Klingons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I would, uh, you know, they kind of remind me of reptilians. So, yeah, <laughs> mm. which, is, which is kind of interesting. But uh, now, is this the same, or was it a different NASA contract where they, it was a religious group, the only religious group that's ever been funded by NASA to investigate the religious impacts of first contact? Was that, was that the same funding, or there, was that a different No, no, there, there, I, 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 I think it was different because there was a warning yeah. in the appendices to the Brookings Report, which I happen to have one of the few available hardbound copies. Mm-hmm. I got it years ago. It was given to me by a very dear friend of mine who, unfortunately, is no longer with us. Anyway, mm-hmm. as an appendix, they were very concerned at the religious impacts on religions of the validation that we are not alone. And yeah. they in particular singled out one group of religionists that they were most concerned about. And who would you bet they were really, really scared of in terms of this transition? If you just off the top of your head, think of a religious group, a denomination, a sect that might be an enemy of, you know, the we are not alone crowd. Well, I would, I, well, maybe uh, Islam. No. Mm. They were concerned about the Buddhists. Oh, the Buddhists. The Buddhists. Interesting. Now, talk about why the Buddhists could be the enemy uh, in the disclosure, you know, scenario from their perspective. I'm not an expert on on Buddhism or or the Eastern religions, but. Well, when you take away all the trappings, Buddhists are talking about multidimensionality, mm-hmm. incredibly long cycles of history, yeah. ages where the, where the earth has moved through different states of well-being, you know, the, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the uh, Vedas, the Yuga cycles. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to keep the secret, you can't let Buddhist philosophy become mainstream. Because yeah. someone will then do a pattern match and say, oh, my God, that's the same as this is the same as. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I could never I, wonder until I got into this deeply why the Buddhists were the enemy in Brookings. The <laughs> Buddhists. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, uh, you know, I was thinking about this, this concept of free will and how uh, how. You know, I mean, there's there's obviously when you talk about religion and the idea of, of free will, 
you know, if you ascribe that everything that this omnipotent God controls everything and, you know, what we do and so forth, then uh, that's this idea of a of contact with with uh, somebody not from the earth uh, would shake that to its very core, you know, this idea. But yeah, if you talk about the Buddhists, yeah, that makes sense because that that is, uh, uh, I guess, e- exposing what what they have been holding sacred to themselves. Well, in the Buddhist tradition and you know associated Eastern religions, you don't have the um, deification of a person, mm-hmm. although Buddhists have kind of fallen by the wayside. You know, Buddha himself is deified but he mm-hmm. would be scandalized by that he preached against that mm-hmm. what you have instead is principles and windows on reality which totally transcend our finite human experience and that of course would be the no-no because it's just one small little step from there to the physics which allows you access and control of a huge part of our reality which now we have zero knowledge of and or control by someone's design that's how you keep people in prison you don't let them know where the keys are yeah yeah okay exactly we are at the top of the hour my guest this morning is dr bruce solheim and we are talking about cabbages kings and sealing wax and many (laughs) other things you're on the other side of midnight when we come back i'm going to ask some more hopefully disturbing questions. Um, So just don't touch that dial. If you have to go away and get something to nibble, you can do that. There'll be a couple, three minutes here where you can do that. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. everyone. It is now Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the land of enchantment. On the other side of midnight, literally it is the other side of midnight here in New Mexico with a very, very uh, crescent moon out there. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim, and we're having a hyperdimensional look at American history, at the things that we've taken for granted in terms of other dimensional or otherworldly or other person influences beyond normal history. Any more pearls on the string, Bruce? Well, I, I was thinking, you know, uh, along the lines of the rise of spiritualism, and you think of uh, Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln and their, uh, the, you know, all those seances in the White House uh, to try to connect with, I think it was Willie their son that died. I think it was Willie was his name. Uh, yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, and, and the premonition that uh, Lincoln had of his death, uh, I think it was the day before he was uh, shot by uh, John Wilkes Booth. And then the, you know, the, uh, as terrible as that was, you know, the uh, uh, John Wilkes Booth, who was, you know, a, a Confederate and he, was at Ford theater and shot him in the back of the head, jumped onto the stage, injured his leg and yelled out to the audience, six semper tyrannis, uh, which is the uh, Latin for thus be it to tyrants. And then he was eventually captured and some of his co-conspirators, but that, uh, that motto was the same motto that, uh, um, Oh, the Oklahoma city bomber had on his, t-shirt when he was captured oh uh what was his name um yeah i'm blanking on the name myself yeah levey was it levey no that's the satanist guy yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway oh no yeah timothy levey yeah timothy levey yeah so anyway that's the uh and, and it's also i think the, it was mcvey timothy mcvey maybe yeah yeah i think you're right and of course, he was, you know, executed in in Indiana at, at Terre Haute at the federal penitentiary there. But uh, anyway, that's what he had on his on his T-shirt, and it's also a uh, a motto that that's used in some some of the splinter groups today, you mm-hmm. know, extremist splinter groups, uh, the Six Semper Tyrannis. So see what I don't I, understand, I, and that gets back to negative influences. You know, my model for what's going on now, this incredible divide, 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 polarize, polarize, get people so they can't even talk to each other. That's not accidental. That's by design. If I was a malevolent extraterrestrial entity, institution, government, race, whatever, you know, you know, kind of uh, nomenclature you want to use, you know, I wouldn't use ray guns and spaceships and, you know, outright invasions and all the cliched 
you know, mm-hmm. B movies from the 1950s model, I would arrange mechanisms that would allow me to burrow from within and cause such intense fractionation and everyone at each other's throats that no one would look up and say, who the hell is doing this to us? Right. And I see that I've I've said from the beginning of the pandemic that this is a weapon of war. It's not the Chinese. The Chinese were its first victims because they committed the cardinal sin of not following their masters. What did the Chinese do? They revealed the stuff that's on the moon, the artificial structures. Just have to go and look at their data published among other places in such incredibly reputable Chinese sources as the website, the official website of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. And then when you compare those images of structures on the moon to the Apollo images of structures on the moon, totally different technology, different time frame, different locations for landing, certainly totally different governmental institutional censoring systems, they're the same. (laughs) And that, of course, is a deadly sin. And I think the Chinese were punished by their extraterrestrial overlords, which gets back to the family or some factions of the family. Because in in terrestrial history, where are the worst wars? Between whom and whom? Between those people who are related, like the Civil War. Yeah, I think this yeah. is a huge civil war. I don't think it's ancillary or incidental to the American experiment. I think that we were targeted deliberately, take down by every means possible the United States of America, and you, it, walking in easy, maybe as benefactors, maybe as messianic, we're here to save you, we're here to serve man. Remember that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and they will be eagerly, you know, absolutely glommed onto by everybody who is desperate for solutions and who cares nothing about process. And how do you judge a savior who is a fake from a savior who's for real? In yeah. other words, has this all been a huge shaggy dog story setting us up a la the DNI? There are extraterrestrials out there that, in fact, our saviors will turn out to be the folks that are trying to do us in. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because I was just looking at uh, on Amazon. There's a book that just came out in August by uh, Jason Reza Giorgiani, who I'm sure you've heard of. He's been on uh, – he's one of the most frequent guests that – oh, What's his name? Uh, New Thinking Aloud. Jeffrey Mishlove ah, has yeah. had Jason on there. He's a he's a philosopher. He had uh, he was initially involved with the alt right movement, but then when he found out what they were actually doing, he left that movement, and uh, so he doesn't you know believe in the in the tenets of it or whatever. But anyway, he's he's this uh, Iranian uh, American scholar, brilliant guy. Anyway, he just came out with a book. Uh, called Closer Encounters. I sent you a link to it. I emailed you a link. If you read the, <laughs> if you read the description 
what you're talking about is exactly what he's talking about here. And uh, he finishes his description of the book by saying that um, he's, he's talking about the, the recent disclosures and the UAP report. But at the end of the description for his book, he says uh, uh, humanity in fact, humanity cannot survive the disclosure of what is detailed in this book. Rather, this profound philosophical analysis of close encounters demonstrates that the true nature of the phenomena has to do with the cosmic force of evolution challenging us to overcome the limits of what has defined humanity for at least 250 million years since our civilization he on Mars. He gets it. He gets since our, it. Since our civilization on Mars was destroyed. That's what he said. That's that. That's in his description of his book. Anyway, I sent you the the the, the link. Well, we got to get him on the show. Do you know him? I I don't know him. I you know I know uh, Jeffrey Mishler. Okay, I'm about to give you a Mission Impossible mission. Okay. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to <laughs> as one academic to another. I mean that doorway it really works magic. Mm-hmm. You know, if I try to get to him directly, there's million filters, but you as an academic, can reach out and contact him and see if both of you to have another conversation because he gets it. And this is why I'm so amazed at one level, at the other level I'm not, at the banality of this conference at the National Cathedral. It's like nobody seemed to grapple with the huge step function of human origins and evolution and reality in a multi-dimensional, provably multi-dimensional universe. Yeah. Yeah. He. It's. It's kind of a tragic story with Giorgiani because he's he's absolutely brilliant. You'd you'd love to have him on on your show, but he. I've I've listened to all of his talks that he's done with Jeffrey. But uh, where is where is he, he currently based? He's he's in the East Coast. He was at. Uh, I forgot if some institute of technology, it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't MIT. It was another one. And uh, anyway, he, well, there's the New Jersey Institute, which is also cutting edge. I think that that might've been where it was. And he was teaching philosophy and he got uh, fired because he was uh, ambushed by some uh, guy who recorded him and took the, uh, you know, selectively chosen edits and then, paint him as this, uh, you know, white national, ultra white nationalist or whatever. And, hmm. and he lost his job. Uh, and so he was that, a victim of the so-called cancel culture from, they took him out. Yeah, they took him out. And it's not just I'm sure that the person who did it was just a tool of somebody else. Right. It was a right. tool of, of the people we're talking about or the entities we're talking well, yeah, about. Yeah. They don't want the big picture to ever be discussed seriously. And, 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 this ties in kind of, and, and I, I will do that. I'll take that mission. I will, I will try to get him, uh, uh, you know, t- together with you, so you guys can have a conversation. See, and one I, of the I, one of the ways you might do this is to finish your op-ed piece, yeah, and send it to him as a peer review. Can you give me a little help on this? What do you think? Yeah, as, as a friend of Jeffrey, yeah, I yeah. think that'll work. That'll, that'll get me get cool. my foot in the door anyway. Cool. But um, th- I mentioned earlier about uh, you know the uh, and you talked about uh, you know Jefferson and and the uh, forming of the Constitution, how there was an earlier draft or whatever that was abolishing or getting rid of slavery. Uh, the the current discussion hot button thing 
you know, uh, especially in, in my, you know, line of work with history at the, at the college level or even at the, the K through 12 uh, level is this idea of critical race theory, which to me is, here's the thing. I have been teaching history uh, since 1991, you know, as a graduate student and then at, here at Citrus since 1998. I have always talked about uh, slavery. I've talked about the Civil War, why we fought the Civil War. I mean, this is something, I, and, you know, it, I mean, there's supposed, supposedly every February is Black History Month. To me, there, there's, I talk about all this stuff all the time. And uh, what's interesting to me is, is this big argument made about something that's already being taught by every single history professor that I know. And it's, and it's not what a lot of people are making it out to be. I think it's a, it's a artificially driven division. For oh, us. of course. Once again, and there's so many good people, you know, academics that are doing a very good job teaching, you know, in, in a more sensitive time, but sure. But you still are teaching the same time, teaching the same thing I did. Uh, you know, when I started. So, uh, and it's, and it's been politicized and it's been uh, blown up and there are people that want to get their 15 minutes of fame on CNN or Fox news or wherever the media outlet is and, and trying to fan the flames and ignoring the truth of the reality, which is that most teachers are doing a very good job already. You don't need to have hire an expert or spend a million dollars on a contract to come in and, and clean house, you know, and all that, because uh, most of these people are already doing a really good job and a fair job, you know, not, not, uh, you know, making people feel guilty or blame. It's just history is history there. We've done some really good things and we've done some really awful things, you know, and, and it, and like you said, you know, how do we judge people? I always tell students, you know, how do we judge people in the past? You got to look at them as in the context of their time. And, and none of us can put up with a, a, the a nth degree of scrutiny before somebody's going to find something not so good about us, mm. you know, historical figures as well. So, but anyway, I, I just think that that is a, uh, uh, that's part of this, this division process that uh, could be solved by calm, rational people just sitting down and saying, okay, we're not going to make people feel bad about it. little kids feel bad about who they are, but we're going to teach, you know, what actually happened. And, and, See, and, the, and not be, to me, not to be me, afraid to, to do that. The, 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 the saving grace, the doorway out of this, you know, you don't want to make five-year-old white kids feel bad that they're white. I mean, come on, give us a break. Yeah. You talk about the culture and the United States as this unique vehicle to ultimately transcend these past sins yeah. that, that only here, and you can actually point to real data. Remember when Obama was elected, what, what went around the world at the speed of light, the overwhelming mm-hmm. reaction, mm-hmm. which was only in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many democracies are on the surface of the earth right now? Leading nations, major powers, huge gross national products, you know, enormous mm-hmm. populations living under Democrat. No other nation saw that they could do what the United States did, which is after 240 years, electing a black man yep. who had, who, you know, had come, certainly his wife did, from slave ancestry. The domination 
of one race by another at the founding of the nation. And suddenly this got, see, to me, that's where all the current incredible backlash began mm-hmm. because this fragile systemic white racism which I lived through. I grew up in it south of the Mason-Dixon line. My parents mm-hmm. were driven out of our little bed and breakfast and restaurant by the deacons of the Methodist church across the street that when we, we, they knew we had people sleeping in the bed and breakfast on mm-hmm. Sunday, tourists would drop in. It, the, the church bells rang like maybe half a dozen times when we moved in. By the end of our experience there, they were ringing 140 times Mm -hmm. so that all our customers our clientele would be driven out and would never stop and so economically we'd be forced out of town and we ultimately had to leave because the the town fathers said because you serve coloreds that was the term oh boy and the 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 feedback the negative feedback i had in school that we all had my brothers and sisters i mean it really cost you a lot to stand for something at yep. that era. And so I've been very sensitive to this concept of whose who's ox is being gored. And I've seen this backlash, this white backlash of fear and peril that their era is ending with the election of Barack Hussein Obama. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was the political scientist Samuel Huntington who said, uh, I think he died in 2008, but anyway, he uh, responding to this idea that America is a failure. And he said, America is not a failure, but it has been a disappointment. You know, this idea that in the past uh, there has been disappointments, but that doesn't mean we're a failure. And we're still, we're still learning. We're still growing. We're still ongoing. And I, I do have that optimistic view about, uh, about us. Uh, but you know, you can't, you can't hide from the, the, you can't hide from the past. You know, you have to, you have to move on and, and, and learn from it. And I was very lucky to have, you know, immigrant parents who were very, uh, very supportive of the civil rights movement. You know, uh, my parents were, were horrified when Martin Luther King was killed and they were big supporters of Cesar Chavez, because my dad was a blue collar carpenter union guy. And so I I grew up with that kind of tolerance. And I, I remember when I was in Germany, my parents were visiting me and I was stationed in Germany working in a prison and we were at a, it was like outside of a PX or something uh, in Germany. And there was this group of black soldiers, you know, that were waiting for a bus or transportation or something. And they were all together, just all of them were black soldiers. And I was talking to my mom and my dad kind of wandered off. And next thing I know, where's dad? And he was over there talking to all these black soldiers, (laughs) you know, and here's this older white man, you know, from Norway and they were having a great time, you know, and I, I, that's what I, I grew up with. You know, my, my parents were, were wonderful. I mean, everybody, you know, they want to think well about their parents and they didn't do everything right, but they were, you know, they were very tolerant people and, and they, you know, they faced some hardships. Uh, it, it, my mom told me this. She said, she said, uh, when I came over, uh, I didn't speak English and I could sit on a bus and everybody would leave me alone until I spoke. Hmm. And she said, as soon as I spoke, they knew I was a foreigner. 
And she said, but guess what? If, if you have black skin, you can't hide. No. That's what, that's what she told me. Wow. Wow. And my my mom was only had a sixth grade education, but man, was she smart. <laughs> and fulfillment of Thomas Wolfe, she discovered she could not go home again. Yep, exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, I must say that kind of you know was a forged in fire you know growing up for me, mm-hmm. and it it probably has influenced a whole bunch of decisions and and uh, you know people that I know and all that just because. To me, you know, when, when, when Roddenberry put on the screen, coming back to my favorite uh, producer, this idea of the Federation where mm-hmm. he had the first black woman in a position of command authority on the bridge. Yep. He had an Asian. You know, he had a guy with pointed ears from another planet. He had a Russian. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I remember these endless debates I had. For God's sake, Gene, you've gone this far. Why not go? He said, I do not want to complicate my life. And I thought, (laughs) and I've thought, of course, a lot more now, looking back at the battles he had with the network. And, you know, he had he was given the Hobson's choice. You can either have the woman first officer or you can have the guy with the ears. You can't have Mm -hmm. both. Yeah. Thank God he made the decision in favor of Nimoy and not Majel. Yeah. (laughs) Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. When you see this documentary, you're going to see why I'm raving about it. Because, and again, oh, I'm, I can't wait. I, I, I come back yeah. to the idea. Remember, FDR. There's no such thing in politics as coincidence. Was this timed to be ready to hit the big screen right after Bill comes back and has his experience, egged on, of course, by Bezos? Who then winds up in the National Cathedral, a member of this panel discussing <laughs> our? You see where I'm? Why I'm suspicious? Yeah. Is it yeah. all a very complicated, multi-dimensional, anti-Brookings plot to pave the way for the beginning of the Star Trek universe? Because that's where we are tonight. I I think so. I tend to agree with you. God, it's taken a long time to get here. Oh, I know. I I still watch a Star Trek episode probably every day because I, I, <laughs> I tell my children, I said, uh, every time you watch an episode, there's it's still extremely relevant today. Well, you know? yeah. <laughs> still extremely relevant. And uh, what was the one I was watching the other day? It had to do with, with, with yeah, I mean, it just every time I, I make a point of, of saying that. And, uh, you know, these major issues that we still deal with and grapple with today. Again, and, take, uh, take, take, take notes, Mr. Spock. In your op-ed, mm-hmm. be sure to mention Gene's vision and, oh, where, yeah. and where we are on the threshold tonight. We're looking at the Federation. We're looking at the genesis, given that now the U.S. government is saying every way but straight out, we're not alone. So if we're not alone, who all is out there? And who will be the first that we're going to meet? And I'm not just talking about members of the family. I'm talking about the whole panoply of who's out there once the the segregation, our segregation, comes to an end. I, I, you know, on my – I'm looking at it right now. I have a – the IDIC medallion. Oh, yeah, uh, IDIC. IDIC. 
infinite yeah. diversity and infinite combination. You know that when I called Roddenberry, when I tracked him down, when, when one of my friends in the sci-fi community, I think it was Fred Pohl, uh, mm-hmm. told me that they were going to cancel Star Trek. And I said, what? You know, so I immediately reached out because I had a radio I had a radio show back then. I was at the museum during the day, and, and uh, then I had this radio show that I would drive across the valley to, to get to. And mm-hmm. so I turned, you know, my audience into Star Trek fans, and we would discuss every Friday morning. We would discuss Thursday night's episode of Star Trek on live radio way back when. So I realized that I had to get to, you know, the great bird of the galaxy, although I didn't know that was his nickname at the time. So I'm there at this museum. You know, I've got the the city of Springfield behind me. So I reached out in those days, making long distance calls was prohibitive unless you had a, you know, independently wealthy. Mm -hmm. I reached out through the museum phone system and I found a G Roddenberry in Hollywood. And I called the number and this guy answered the phone and he said, yes, I'm Gene Roddenberry. And that was the beginning, you know, remember Casablanca of a beautiful friendship. (laughs) And I was a thorn in the side and, you know, a burr under the saddle blanket. But he told me that literally the reason he picked up the phone and someone else in the house didn't answer is because he was sitting on the floor cross-legged on his basement floor with the phone next to him. And, of course, in those days, you couldn't tell who was calling. The phone just rang. You just picked up the receiver. Mm -hmm. And he was working on the medallion, the Idic medallion, Mm -hmm. literally, when that my call came in. That's really cool. The one that Spock eventually wore in the show. Yep. Yeah. To, uh, to honor the lady who was going to be working with the Medusan ambassador. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Who drove people mad if they gazed upon him. Yep. So. Yep. No, I just, I yeah, that's one of my one of my favorite things, and I think one of the really important things that ties that universe together. You know, the, that that particular medallion. Well, when we come back, we'll have about a half an hour. I'm going to open the phone lines to see if anybody wants to ask you questions or whether I get to keep you all to myself (laughs) here on the other side of midnight. So let's do that now. Uh, My guest this morning is a very interesting guy who um, I think is going to be around for a number of shows, Dr. Bruce Solheim, who has lived and currently lives in two worlds, one where there are normal mainstream academics and the other where there are things that go bump in the night things that are not quite in this dimension you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland you shall return
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this uh, Saturday night, now Sunday morning. A half hour on the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment. If you want to contact us, if you want to call us, uh, what you want to do is you want to call 917-889-8802. And we will try to answer a question. We will give you a platform for an opinion or a statement. And if you can back it up, that'd be really cool. But, you know, that's not mandatory. You'll kind of throw it out there for everyone else to think about and chew over and maybe come up with a rejoinder or a counterpoint or uh, whatever. That's 917-889-8802. My guest this morning is Dr. Bruce Solheim. We're talking about, well cabbages and sealing wax and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, Bruce, I wanted to kind of get back to the idea of external influence because I believe that there is an extraordinary malevolent force alive in the land, which is part and parcel of the pandemic, of the fact that for months we did nothing as a nation. Our, Our public health has been absolutely paralyzed. We now have people, millions of people who resolutely think, you know, with their last dying breath in the hospital, they're dying of COVID-19 and they insist that they do not have COVID-19, that it's all a hoax and a lie. I mean, talk about the strength of that persuasion to where even in the face of death, they cannot admit the scientific reality of what's really going on. This polarization, I think, is being amped up. It's been artfully created. It's being encouraged. All kinds of fellow travelers are being used to foster a huge set of big lies, all because we are at war. And if they take out the last bulwark on Earth as a defense against whoever 
is trying to invade, to take us over, to marginalize the idea of free will and choice and true democracy, then they win. Am I nuts? Bruce? Did we lose Bruce? Let me check my screens. Uh, no. I think we're still there. Huh. Oh, how interesting. We have absolutely disappeared. A difference in opinion does not mean a difference in principle. Ah, oh, there you are. Yeah. There you are. Sorry. I, ah. I, I, I lost well, you. Welcome for... back, Richard. <laughs> hey, <laughs> Richard. When did you lose me? It was a few minutes ago. Oh, my I, God. I, yeah, you just kind of dropped out. Oh, well, that's intriguing. It happens on this show a lot. You know, yeah. we, we have gremlins, and they're very three-dimensional gremlins. So Yeah, we touched a nerve somewhere again. <laughs> well, hopefully, that's why we're here. Okay, so what did I miss? No, I was just I was just sharing uh, that Thomas Jefferson quote that a, a, a difference of opinion doesn't mean a difference in principle. And uh, that's a kind and, and, and Martin Luther King said something different, you know, they, they kind of in the same vein when he said that people need to learn to disagree without being violently disagreeable. Indeed. And so this, you know, I, I think of um, our our leaders, you know, in Washington, and I think of uh, going back to Reagan, we talked about Reagan earlier, uh, and Tip O'Neill, you know, the Speaker of the House. They were rivals, political rivals, obviously, uh, Democrat and Republican. But um, after the day was done, they would meet for dinner and cocktails, and they were friends. And I, I wonder how much of that is going on now. I don't think there's very much of it going on right now. Well, because people are being ostracized. For instance, on this yep. on this bill, which passed the other day, you know, the House passed the Senate with, I think, 19 Republican um, uh, co-sponsors, uh, mm-hmm. and it went through the House. All of the 13 Republicans in the House who voted for something that the Senate minority leader, you know, mm-hmm. voted for and is proud of having voted for, yep. they're all being threatened with loss of all their committee chairmanships. It's it's not so. It's yeah. like divisions are being so deliberately ramped up, fostered, encouraged, because it's divide and conquer. Yeah. Obvious. Yeah. Obvious. So what's the antidote? Well, I think, you know, if we take the, the words that uh, that both Thomas Jefferson said and Martin Luther King, um, I think that we just have to learn to, I mean, we we have to learn to, to compromise. And, and we're actually brilliant at compromise when we set our minds to it. And, uh, but it, it, we have to move off of this, uh, you know, this. Yeah, but when you say when that, that's like the old another. joke about, you know, the, the mice all get together, uh, a kind of a simile that I'm particularly, you know, attracted to at the moment for reasons mm-hmm. that Kentia will explain sometime. When the mice all get together and they say, okay, we got a big problem. We got this cat. And so we've got to obviously the need warning, early warning when the cat's coming around. 
I've got an idea. One says, let's put a bell around the cap, mm-hmm. you know, neck of the cap. Okay. Then it's up for a vote. Okay. Who is going to bell the cat? <laughs> who is going to, in, a, in an environment of incredible, deliberate divisiveness, where you are targeted as the enemy for simply voting for roads and broadband and bridges and things that don't mm-hmm. fall down and kill your constituency, when that can be turned into a symbol of the enemy, how mm-hmm. do we get back to sanity where compromise is the only way that politics can ever really serve its primary function? Well, it it, it kind of reminds me of what, what is most important. And uh, I, I remember I was asked uh, uh, when I was in the military, you know, are you a, a, a a, a, a Democrat or, or a Republican, and I said, I, I'm an American, and I can vote for whoever I want to, and I can have whatever opinions I want, but whoever is my leader, that's, you know, that's, we obviously have, uh, you know, a chain of command, and I, I, I kind of... Well, remember Lincoln during the height of the Civil yeah. War when people are trying to kill him, and eventually mm-hmm. they succeeded. What yeah. was his... What was his central, one of his central claims to history? Well, the, the idea of the, the Emancipation Proclamation. No, 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 as he was forming his government. Oh, the, the, he had a, a team of rivals. The team of rivals, yes. Yeah. He exactly. brought ostensible enemies into his own camp yeah. and made them colleagues. Yeah. You know? He deliberately crossed the aisle. He deliberately reached out. He deliberately, I mean, Biden is trying desperately. And I don't know. I think there are such forces, dark, malevolent forces that are trying to paint everything Joe Biden is doing as evil and horrible and uh, at, at worst, a failure. And he's had so many brilliant successes in the first year, more successes than any president in modern history just in the first year. And no one knows. Because the noise is overwhelming the signal, and someone is trying, again, to divide and destroy us from within. So who is that? When you talk to your sources upstairs, and i got to tell you, I'm incredibly suspicious of sources that Mm -hmm. certainly don't wear bodies. But when you talk to them and you ask them what the hell is going on, what are they saying? Well, there there are these forces that are working with our, you know, with humans here on Earth that are uh, uh, being manipulated to say and do these things that are very destructive. So they're and, pawns uh, in a larger chess game. Yes, it's part of this. What I went back to earlier, saying, uh, you know, that we are caught in the middle between these. Uh, these groups, you know, these ET groups, this, this government guy who won't say that publicly, but you know, <laughs> said it privately to a friend of mine. So, you know, that, I, I think that is, that is exactly what's going on and w- what I've been told as, as well. And then there's... You know, let, me, let me stop you there because he almost acts like we're not really involved except as incidental cannon fodder, whereas our model is we are central to this dichotomy, this war, this this fight for the soul. I mean, Biden's very phrase, you know, the soul of America. It's like at some level, Biden gets it. How much has he been briefed? How much more does he know that he can't talk about because it's not time yet? 
But when he ran for president and he announced that the foundation of his campaign was for the soul of America, that's not a trivial three-dimensional statement. No, that's a that's a foundational statement. You yep. Know? And 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 th- this idea that uh, you know what I'm always told every time I have these spirit walks and make the connection with Anzar is to I'm reminded to keep love in my heart and always operate from a position of love. Which okay, sounds... let, me, let me stop you there because I need to ask another question quickly because we only have five yeah, yeah. minutes left. Sure. In addition to Anzar, you know, the old yep. relative, do you mm-hmm. talk to anybody else? Do you get different opinions? Do you try to correlate different perspectives or is your information coming from a soul source? No, I, I also talk to, uh, I always talk to my mom and dad. Uh, I always talk to my friend, Jean. Uh, there is a friend of mine who was a teacher who passed away. I always talk to her. Uh, and my writing mentor who just passed away in July. Now I, I talk to him as well. Uh, and there there's a couple others that are more minor figures, but they always, they usually chime in. So I, yeah, there's other other sources. Generally, they're in agreement, but not every time. And 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 uh, oftentimes, uh, it's easier to understand Gene, you know, because we were so close. Uh, because sometimes Anzar is his answers are are, are somewhat cryptic. You mean they're parables. And, yes, exactly. <laughs> so it takes me a while sometimes to. They have to, to be decoded. Yeah. Why do they and, do uh, that? It's like they all grew up carrying around little books of Emily Dickinson. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So usually I'll, I'll get the uh, you know the this you know the answer that I can get right away you know from Gene. But even even so, he's he's operating at a different level now. So uh, you know sometimes I still have to break through what and, and somewhat not so much decode, but just look at the depth of what he's hmm. what he's saying to to get it. But yeah, so the 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 short answer is yes, I get other sources as well. But I'm I, I don't open myself up to everything because <laughs> I, I'm, I'm frankly that I've had negative experiences with that. So I, I very well protected and hmm. narrow the, narrow the, uh, the groups that I, or the people that I, or entities that I communicate with. How do you pre-select? I, well, it, you know, I, I started with, uh, with my, my parents you know, and then uh, Gene when he passed away, and uh, and then I okay. Let me, figuring... let, me, let me let me stop you there, because remember yeah. I'm having rather intriguing experiences that I'm trying to calibrate. Yep. How do you know it's your parents? The way they talk to me, the what they tell me, uh, I know them. You know, I, I know that's how they would answer. I know that's where they're coming from. That's their experience, and uh, if it was some other entity, well, because I do the protection, I, I know that I'm protected. I'm not. Nobody's fooling me, you know. So, uh, talk about protection then, because there's a lot of people. Yeah, they're going to listen to this tonight, and they're going to say, "Oh, that sounds interesting." <clears throat> well, I, I I grew up in in the Norwegian Lutheran Church, so I you know I, I have a, a belief in God. 
I, I do my, my prayers of protection. I also have some spirit guides that I have been with me. Uh, and I, I don't know if I talked about them last time. No, uh, no. One of them is an angelic being uh, named uh, Theodora. And the other is a uh, kind of looks like a Native American elder, you know, kind of a, a Native American. Oh, you elder. did mention him and you were in this class you were teaching and only one person could see him. And he has a very interesting name. Uh, well, his name is Ozzy. Yeah, <laughs> he's called Ozzy. That's what I call him. And uh, he doesn't talk. Uh, he's kind of the, uh, the the bouncer at the door when I uh, open myself up for the uh, spirit communication. So okay. And I I um, so that's who I always uh, talk to first. Well, first I do my prayers, and as I have done since I was a little kid. And then I talk to my spirit guides. And I also mentioned, I think I might have mentioned it to you, that I mentioned, uh, uh, I call her Lieutenant O'Hara uh, from the original show. Mm-hmm. And I, I say I'd like to open up uh, hailing frequencies uh, hailing frequencies to all good <laughs> and kind uh, alien entities and spiritual entities. And, uh, and thank you. And then I thank her because she's been an inspiration to me, you know, since I was a kid her her character and who she represents and what she represents. So I just thought it was appropriate to include her in there. And I always say, you know, God bless to her because I know she's going through some hard times right now from what I've been reading. So, um, and then I go ahead. Well, you know, I think it was, I think it was her brother who got caught, caught up in heaven's gate and was one of the 39 and of course, why was it 39? Because that's twice 19.5, which is a critical number in the hyperdimensional physics model. Mm-hmm. There's so many interrelated threads. By the way, speaking of Star Trek and Michelle and mm-hmm. the other cast members, and you're going to love uh, episode one and two. I uh, don't want to give any, any spoilers, but guys, you've got to go out and find this History Channel every week, Friday nights. Um, um, there's a very interesting backstory about how the animated series came to be when NBC canceled Star Trek in, in, you know, real life. Mm -hmm. And that's an incredible backstory that I didn't know. And all the little nuances, including a key role played by Nimoy. Uh, Anyway, I don't want to give spoilers away, but this is an incredibly important series and the timing right now after you know the captain has his transformative space experience at the you know uh, behest of bezos who winds up at this conference it's just come on you can't (laughs) write this you know fiction has to be to be believed it's got to have elements of truth in it well this has all kinds of elements of deep 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 I don't want to say deep state stuff, but deep interconnected stuff. And wasn't it that uh, uh, William Shatner was invited uh, at no cost, right? Yeah, Would no, I... Bezos comped him, wouldn't you? But, uh, oh, yeah, well, that's that's a no-brainer there. But the uh, but I guess Tom Hanks was somehow, he was interested, but then he would have to pay. Was that true? I have, I I, I, I have not followed the rumors. You know, yeah, I just... I, I I heard that. But what I, I find very interesting that. is there's this this rivalry going on between Musk and and Bezos, 
And yeah. NASA the other day, and we're going to talk about this extensively tomorrow night, uh, NASA has now delayed the Artemis mission to the moon to, oh, yeah. to 2025, which mm-hmm. frankly is not much of a delay at all. Um, and they're claiming that a major part of that delay is because of the lawsuit that Bezos filed against NASA when they selected oh. Musk to develop mm-hmm. the transportation in Artemis to the moon, to the moon's surface. Yeah. So you've got two guys who are trying to open the system and get us off planet, and yet they're at such loggerheads that one of them impedes NASA and the other guy in carrying out a mission a year earlier than it's now conceivably can be can be mounted so you know who's wearing what hat <laughs> a non-trivial question yeah no that is interesting speaking of wearing hats um have you ever discussed or asked or been interested in uh, gene's source of information for his vision the star trek universe the federation idic etc etc yeah, I mean, I've, I think we talked about it last time or maybe off off uh, the air, but uh, I've always thought that he that this was a uh, uh, that this was inspired by hyperdimensional beings. Well, the, 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 the statement is that he has listened to the so-called Council of Nine, yeah. which is a set of channel beings kind of reminded me of the Aeneid in the Egyptian cosmology, which, mm-hmm. which are nine. So who are the Council of Nine, and why do they select Gene Roddenberry as a fountain to pervade three-dimensional media space with a vision, which when he put it out there on network television in 65, 66, was anathema to almost anything else on network television, including a black in, in, in the command structure and a woman mm-hmm. in, in, the, in other words, everything that we've been taught through all those, you know, hundreds of years were not the way proper societies function. Gene basically flaunted every rule, including yeah. the first interracial kiss between, you know, Bill and Michelle. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, and, and then all the technology that has spun off from that and all the, the scientists and engineers who've been inspired exactly, by the show. Exactly, exactly. You know, gener- a couple of generations of them mm-hmm. you know, have been inspired. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, it's definitely a, a, a turning point. And, and this, I think you're right. This is where we are, we are headed and we have to, we, we actually have to head that. Head, head well, that. look at the New York Post article. Yep. Come on. The gal who is giving the president daily briefings on the interaction of the world in the United States in terms of national security is telling him there are aliens running around. That's what she's saying in public. What are they saying in private? Exactly. Exactly. Probably some of some of what this guy told my friend, maybe. <laughs> well, you Probably. see, I think I, uh, I really, given the reconstruction of the history of the human race that we've done in our research i don't think we're in i don't think we're the vietnamese caught between you know the russians the soviets the red chinese 
and the United States. I think we're much more central to everybody's interest because we're unique. Remember growing yeah. up in school where you were told that uh, uh, there was something called the Copernican Principle? Remember what the Copernican yeah. Principle was? Well, I know I, I know who Copernicus is, but I don't remember the, Copernic, the, the Copernican Principle. No, we're basically just average. Oh, okay. Average planet, average star, average galaxy, average mm-hmm. position, average evolution, average legacies, mm-hmm. average everything. Average, 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 average. We've now been, since 1995, finding solar systems with a succession of increasingly sophisticated telescopic technology, both on the ground and in orbit, like Hubble. Out of all the star systems and all the planets, something now four or five or 6,000 that we've confirmed, it turns out this solar system is unique. Yeah. It's one of a kind. Nothing out there is like it. And nobody is making the big, you know, quoting Biden effing deal about that that should be made. Yeah. I mean, what does that tell you, Mr. Plugged in Academic? Well, they need us. Well, and do, now they, we need them. do they need us or were we a crucial experiment in consciousness, in free will, in what it's like to occupy three-dimensional bodies, to go and undergo God knows what, and something went radically wrong. Because look around, it's not going right. Mm-hmm. And our model is it went wrong a long time ago. And everything since has been playing catch-up, but it comes in cycles back to Edward Dewey and the foundation for the study of cycles. And we're now at the peak point of this 26,000 year cycle of the hyperdimensional physics modulated by a designed solar system which is broken because it originally did not look exactly like this it had some other important aspects and members and we're living under a broken physics and we're coming up to a real important Decision point, will we go this way or that way? And so many folks are putting their thumb on the scales trying to decide our future. That's our model. Yep. That's it? Yep. Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, this idea of, I keep coming back to this idea that, uh, you know, I, I read the UAP report or whatever, and they mentioned threat like eight times. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. I, I see it as an opportunity, not a threat. See, to me, see, Bassett and I have this back and forth because he's anathema to the idea of threat. To me, the idea that they're putting threat first front rows and center, I think, is thank God from your lips to God's ears, that kind of thing. Do you know why? For funding. That's how because they, they we won't get off our fat you-know-whats unless we are in a fear state because that's what really prompts human beings, based on yeah. a lot of history, Dr. Solheim, to get mm-hmm. off their asses and do something. It's, it's the greatest motivator of human behavior. It doesn't right. have to be real. It only has to fear. be perceived. Remember, yeah. 99% of politics is perception. 
So the idea yeah. that they're leading with the fear threat, that's going to be the thing that unites human beings. And then when they find out that there's a much more complicated stuff going on out there, they will have, a la Brookings, have gone through the naturalization curves, the talk you down off the ceiling curves, the no, there are good guys, and they're not so good guys, and it's about choice, choice, choice. What kind of future do we want? And guess what? We're out of time. <laughs> so I guess I'm going to have to have you back. <laughs> it, went, it went by fast. Doesn't it yeah. go by very, very fast? Well, well I, wanna... I have a mission. I got to get, I got to get Jason. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to write together. the right op-ed that the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or USA Today will want to publish at this yeah. perfect time where everything is coming together to make the decision, what kind of future are we going to have? Yep. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Bruce Solheim, this morning for a most interesting discussion. Needless to say, we're going to be doing this again. Now, tomorrow night, we're going to pick up with our imaging team and maybe a surprise guest or two. Um, developments vis-a-vis artifacts left by someone, I think it's us, all over the ancient solar system, including the moon and this new backing away from the 2024 deadline to 2025. Of course, what no one's counting on is Elon Musk. There will be surprises. So tomorrow night, same bad channel, same time. Third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.